TJ, come on. Doug has fans, and JB's been on this show for 15 <laughs> minutes, and he's already got fans. Look, uh, I'm telling you, um, my motto in life is to fly under the radar. I've done it my whole life, and I'm quite good at it. Your modeling finishing skills are going to prove otherwise when your stuff gets really popular because it's really, really good. That's well, why I keep you. saying they're not that great. No, I'm <laughs> not. Fit, trust that. me. <laughs> You're an enigma. Welcome, everybody, to episode 13 of the Triple P. The Plastic Posse podcast, as always, is sponsored by Goodman Models, makers of the awesome super sanding blocks. You guys keep hearing me talking about these blocks, and it's because they're terrific. They have a place of honor on my bench, and they've become one of my go-to tools. If you don't already own a set of these, head on over to GoodmanModels.com and order a set of these from our friend Anthony. So, Doug, TJ. How you guys doing? Pretty good. Pretty dang good today. But uh, Scott, you forgot to ask someone else how they're doing because we're very excited to welcome the one and only John Manani on the podcast and not as a guest, but as a permanent member of the Plastic Posse. John, I would like to say welcome to the show. And I know this isn't your first rodeo, so I know you're going to knock it out of the park and it's awesome to have you aboard. Thanks. I appreciate the kind intro. And I also want to thank Scott and Doug for allowing me to tag along. It was, you know, it was a great first episode. I can't believe it was almost three months ago. So I'm really happy to be here onward and upward for the podcast and excited to uh, mix up with you guys. JB's actually on his uh, second stint. Uh, We had him on the show trying to record yesterday and he messed up our audio feed. So TJ fired him, but we've, uh, we had an intervention and uh, we've rehired him and decided to give him another shot. Well, I appreciate it. I'm assuming the check's still in the mail. (laughs) as you guys out there might know uh, jb's been a huge part of the podcast like tj said we're really really happy to have him aboard that's just waiting for the check from mike rinaldi he'll just sign it and send it on to you guys i would uh, i would say to the posse that we've got another fantastic podcast for everybody out there but this episode is a step beyond you guys have heard already from jb and we've also moved the podcast a day early So from here on out, it's going to drop every other Wednesday. That's just because uh, the family of podcasts has gotten a little big and we're trying to all stay out of each other's way so that if you guys are listening to all the different podcasts, you've got content always coming at you. So that's, that's kind of why we did that. Also today, you will get to hear from one of the most interesting people in our hobby. We're going to bring you our interview with the one and only Mike Rinaldi. He's one of the most talented modelers in the world. He's also the owner of Rinaldi Studio Press, which, of course, publishes his tank art and other series of modeling guidebooks. We talked with uh, Mike about his plans for 2021 and beyond. We talked about his products and 
his approach to modeling. I think you're definitely going to want to stay tuned for that. Well, you guys, uh, lucky number 13. It's hard to believe we're uh, already 13 episodes into this thing. Yeah, I can't believe it. It's uh, just kind of like flown by. It's been really fun. Uh, This is like, I don't know, all new territory for me. So I wasn't even really in the podcast before we started this. I actually probably didn't even listen to one until Scott asked me to be on one. Yeah, it's surreal for me. I know I've mentioned it before, but but Scott approaches me and asks if I want to be on a podcast. And I said, oh, okay. But it, 13 episodes, it's been a lot of fun. We've made some, we've made a bunch of friends all over the world and we just keep on rolling. Yeah. And JB, uh, unfortunately, also took my phone call or Facebook <laughs> message, as it were. Yeah. I'm wondering why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> he was, uh, next thing he knew, he was on our first episode with a bunch of rookies, uh, probably going, um, what are these guys doing? John, John is our, he's our ringer. He's been with us since the beginning, even not officially, but he's been with us since the beginning. He's our ringer. That's right. Ride together, die together. Bad boys for life. (laughs) (laughs) So the motto is, if your crazy buddy calls you and asks you if you want to do a podcast, hang up on him, right? Exactly. Ignore the message. Don't read it. And just (laughs) walk away. Break the wrist. All right. Well, we also want to let everyone know that episode 13 of the Triple P is sponsored by Posse members Chris Sieber also known as Luftrum72, and Rob Morales, and our good friend Joe Porsche from the IPMS Las Vegas. Joe, we all hope you're feeling better, buddy. These three Posse members have all used our PayPal.me link to help us out. So thanks, guys. We sincerely appreciate it. If you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to help us out, it's really easy. Yeah, just go to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. There's no www. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a heart icon. You can access this heart on any of our podcast episodes on this site just click the little heart and you can donate any amount you'd like we really appreciate any help any support and if you don't want to donate you can still support the show by taking a few moments and leaving us a review on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from five-star reviews help us get the show out to more people who are interested in scale model podcasts we also want to give a shout out to the other scale modeling podcasts that are out there They are all great to listen to, so please check them out. We have a list. So On the Bench in Australia, they're on episode 104 with the great Lincoln Wright. We have Plastic Model Mojo with Mike and Dave going on to episode 30. Scale Model Podcast out of Canada with Stuart and Friends. They're up to episode 63. Model Geeks are on to their second episode out of the East Coast, the United States. And lastly, is Just Making Conversation with James and Malcolm out of the UK on episode four. And I have to say, James and Malcolm, I want to grab a tea, sit next to the roaring fireplace and watch the snowfall when I listen to your podcast. So keep up the great work. While you listen to them, tell you where to stick it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, they're doing a great job. It's a, it's a, it's a great podcast. Give it a listen if you haven't heard it yet. We also want to uh, give a shout out to fellow content creators, Brew Pie with Frets with Stephen Lee and Jim Bates, a scale model Canadian on YouTube. Yeah, those are really good uh, blogs and vlogs. Uh, Jim, I was actually talking to Jim last night, and he should have a new vlog out for the Scale Canadian TV anytime now. Stephen Lee, he's a great writer, and he's prolific. I think just in the last two or three days, he's had a couple of really, really good blogs that he's posted. Okay, um, for some news now, uh, we already spoke about that podcast will be dropping every other Wednesday, so just be aware of that. 
We also wanted to give a huge shout out to Hector Cologne and the guys over at the Butch O'Hare IPMS chapter. These guys have been great supporters of ours. Um, they link our show on their website, and Hector's always uh, given us great feedback. The other day, he sent us a great big box of uh, swag. So, Hector, really, really appreciate that. That's really nice of you. We love the stuff. Uh, still got to get uh, some of that stuff out to uh, TJ, but uh, really appreciate that. And if you have swag for the Plastic Posse podcast, our address, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> all right group build the t3485 group build just keeps going strong we're up to 275 members which is incredible john and tj started that and it's just really kind of grown beyond our wildest expectations it's everything a group build should be john has done a complete step-by-step uh, series of photos on there that are really awesome we've got that tagged at the beginning of the group build so you can also see that and there's a whole bunch of modelers that have done incredible models that are in there there's reference photos there's errata things to look out for in your build so if you're at all interested in that Ryefield t3485 take a look at the group and it there's there's no deadline we're going to keep it rolling and until um, you know it's it's run its course but anyway it's a great build so check that out while we're talking about that i mean TJ, how's your kit coming along? It's more or less complete, so it's in a better state than it was last time we talked about it. Uh, when I think it was like just the lower <laughs> half of the hull. I haven't done the tracks yet, but that's that's pretty much the main thing. And I think there's a couple small pieces of um, photo which I got to do, and I got to figure out how many of the fuel drums I'm going to put on because I do like uh, empty fuel drum stands. It's like kind of thing I I got. Um, so, but yeah, other than that, it's, it's going pretty good. If, if I would actually like to get some primer on, if I could stop being distracted by all these other projects I have. My, uh, my kit's finished as well. I actually have spent most of the weekend putting together a set of, uh, Fryle tracks for it. And, uh, those have turned out really, really good. I started using the kit tracks, but we, uh, ended up agreeing to disagree the kit and I on, on the way that those fit. So. Probably user error, probably on me, but the Friles look really, really good. Doug, how, how's your kit coming along? I'd imagine with all the work you're doing in the basement, you probably got yours uh, under a pile of sheetrock dust somewhere down there. Yep, in the corner of the basement. But hey, that's getting close, getting close. I hope to have uh, painting doors in the room this week, so I'll drop the floors and I'll be ready to rock. Nice. While we're talking about the group build, guys, um, I think... It's probably time to think about uh, formalizing what we're going to do for our next group build. Like I mentioned, we'll keep the T3485 group going, but I think I think it's probably time to maybe start another one. And I think the leading contender amongst all the guys here and with the polls we've done and the feedback that we've we've received is probably for a Bandai TIE Fighter or similar. What do you guys think about that? I think it's a great idea. I'm so down with Star Wars. I'm definitely in. Well, I've threatened John if he comes on the show as an initiation, right, that he's got to build a Star Wars kit of some kind so maybe he could kill a couple birds with one stone. That sounds good. As long as you accept my armor techniques on it, I'm okay with that. So a little modulation, maybe some chip paint. So it might not be for the purists, but it'll uh, it'll get done. You know, they call it science, actually science fantasy, because it's not, it's not sci-fi, it's fantasy. 
And so do what you want and have fun. So I would say if we're going to do a TIE fighter, maybe we should open it up to all like any TIE. So any of the TIE family, you know, the TIE interceptor, the TIE fighter, the the new ties the from the sequel trilogy, the funky tie from uh, Rogue One, the the striker. Yeah, the striker. And then any scale, because most of the ones out there are 70 second scale, right? But there's a few hanging out, you know, that are out there that are, are larger scale. Um, I own one, so I would like to build that one. So we're talking any brand too. Yeah, I would say, you know, especially with uh, the issues that people have been having getting Bandai kits. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are like myself and have a gigantic stack of them, but not everyone does. So if, if you can get some of the, the other ties, like the fine molds ones, which are fantastic, by the way, they're, they're awesome. Even the Ravel ones, which Ravel also reboxes some of the fine mold ones. Yeah, and kudos if you break out the AMT Ertl one. Uh, God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna be driving people away from the hobby. <laughs> I think stamp collecting just got a big boost in certain corners of the of the world here. Uh, I I will be doing the fine molds uh, tie interceptor. I just dug that out of the stash, so I'm I'm really excited. Had the interceptor, such a cool looking ship. What do they call them? The squints? I think that's what the, was that the, I think it was in the uh, the comic books. That's what the rebel pilots nicknamed them because they look like, you know, like squinty eyes. So I got the, you know, the curved wings. Yeah, they're, they're cool. I, I love interceptors. Yeah, I like that one you did a few years ago, TJ, that had the red stripes on the solar panels. Oh, yes, that was uh, Merrick Steele's TIE fighter. He was in the 181st Imperial Fighter Squadron. That was back in the, the X-Wing days from the X-Wing comic books and, and uh, novels that are now, I guess, no longer canon or whatever. I don't know. I don't really follow Star Wars outside of the movies. Yeah, I just know who he is through tabletop games. Like I said, we'll keep the T-34-85 group going. Uh, TJ and I still have to finish our, our entries there. But over the next couple of weeks, uh, check out our Facebook page and we'll open that new uh, TIE Fighter group build up. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Doug, it looks like we've got a mountain of feedback after episode 12. This bag is bulging at the seams. Thanks, guys. Let me say right up front, we are so grateful for all the feedback and all the communications. We get so much, and we may miss a few here and there, but we sure try to get back to everybody. So thanks again. Starting off, cheers from Australia from Jamie. He says, a well-done roundtable episode. Good learnings I picked up. The learning efforts to find the right balance between every detail and being content with a build that ticks all your own boxes. And also how much social media has allowed all of us to pick up and apply different skills and techniques from modelers all over the world. You're really building a solid, informative, and friendly podcast that adds to the podcast landscape we enjoy. Cool. Rick Baker. Hi, guys. All the TIE Fighter talk from the early part of episode 12 gave me an idea for an insane and way beyond my ability to create diorama involving ties. I literally haven't been able to stop designing it in my mind for days now. And I think I have you three to thank. Well, four now. As such, I feel it's now your responsibility to talk me out of even attempting it. Hey, you want to get in a group build, Rick? Uh, For no other reason than I agree they're fun to build. I've included a photo of my assembled but yet as yet unpainted 172nd Bandai tie collection. Minus, for some reason, the tie bomber. Oh, do I want one of those? 
Also, since the subject of a perfect grade Millennium Falcon came up, sorry, TJ, hope you get one. I bought one last summer as a present to myself for my 50th birthday. Hopefully it'll find its way into my workspace by the end of this year. Also, the armored piece reminded me about some some thoughts I've had about 135th scale, but I'll save that rabbit hole for another time. P.S. I'm so glad hockey's back. Yeah, you and me both, except my team sucks. And we got Andrew DeBoer. Romance, bromance is in the air. You guys are killing it. Great interview, Chops. I think Lincoln Wright was genuinely genuinely surprised. A variety of modeling genres representative. And let's, let's face it, we all have a TJ's compressor in our lives. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. All right. Thanks, guys, for the fantastic podcast. This is from Chris, by the way. Thanks, guys, for the fantastic podcast. Enjoying every one of them so far and looking forward to the release of each new episode. Just throwing out an idea for a guest on your show. That would be Dave Johnson, who was for, formerly with Wingnut Wings. He's a great modeler and a fun guy to talk to. I've met him a couple times at shows in the past. I think it would be very fitting as it's coming up on the one-year anniversary of the shocking shutdown of Wingnut Wings that happened back in March 2020. Just an idea. Keep up the great work. He was on OTB um, about a year ago or so, and he was fantastic. Uh, he's uh, seems like a really, really talented modeler, and that would be great. So, I also can't believe it's been a year since Wingnut Wings made their announcement. I can't believe it's been a year since 2020. <laughs> we need to get further and further away from it. <laughs> Let's keep going. Okay, it's been a month since 2020, I know, but man, that was a that was a roller coaster. All right, Jeremy Elliott said, "Loving the show, guys. I listened to the few, a few of the episodes the other day while at work. Today, I sat at my bench while listening while I was building. Found it interesting, especially regarding building outside your comfort zone." It just so happens I'm doing that. I mainly build aircraft, but today found me starting the Trumpeter M1133 Striker MEV. This is my first armor-type vehicle ever. Wow, cool. Okay, we have Brandon from Canada. Hey, guys, I've been musing about writing this email for a while now, but a recent post on a forum got me off the fence. As some of you are wargamers, I think you'll understand. I played War Machine for close to 11 years and somewhat competitively for about seven Quit because of life and switch to scale modeling, but I digress. When you play a competitive game like War Machine, the idea of playing through the end game comes up from time to time. This game, this is a game where you can get the tar kicked out of you early on, but if you understand your army and how to play the end game, you can win, maybe. But a lot of players will rage quit early and throw a game <laughs> before this point or find themselves in the end game and fumble because they've never practiced. They rarely get good enough to win. Attorneys. Okay, here's the stretch to modeling. The end game is a, the finished model. I've, I've seen people get frustrated and angry with modeling setbacks or problems with the kit to the point where they bin it, the whole thing, and put it on the sh- or put it on the shelf of doom. To me, that's not playing the end game. As frustrating as it is, those modelers should push through or move on from the annoyances so they can practice other skills that will make them better for the next kit. They might realize by working through a problem how to avoid it the next time. It might be that the final model won't be up to the modeler's standard and might not display might be might not be of display worthiness, even if it was used to work on a new method. Yeah, sometimes we don't win the end game and it sucks, but if you consider modeling as a hobby of improvement and not results, there is always value in finishing a kit. Sorry if that got ranty. Keep up the good work. Brandon, thank you for that. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I 
I tend to think I, I finish a decent number of kits. And one of the reasons why is pushing through those, uh, you know, fumbles. There have been tons of times where I've thought a kit is a disaster and I was going to throw it away, but just to keep pushing through. And like you said, you learn and you move on and onward and upward. So Brandon, thank you for those kind words. That's a, that's a good point, John. And I think when we were discussing, it might've been episode 11, but you know, I had mentioned that um, I feel like finishing a model, completing a project is a skill in and of itself. Definitely. Okay, next we have Terry Wilkinson. Greetings, guys. Already on my fourth listen of episode 12. What an informative, inspiring, and fun show. The perspectives of JC and Neil brought to the table were fantastic, and JB, oh, thank you, is always in top form as usual. Thank you all again, uh, and job well done. Uh, This next one's uh, from Dave. Uh, from on the bench g'day from down under godfather here with an idea for a new group group build how about a tie fighter loving the longer episode format keep up the good work well dave that's what we're doing so hopefully you can get in on it with us uh that'd be fun for those of you who don't know the reason we call dave the godfather is on the bench is really you know kind of the first scale modeling specific podcast that that you know that we're aware of you know and they're 100 episodes in so we always defer to him and Obviously, when he says, uh, let's do a group build on a TIE fighter, we listen. So we hear you, Godfather. All right. Bring it on. All right. This is from Pete. So, gents, I love your roundtable table armor discussion. It is one of the most interesting shows yet, especially when you broach the subject of modeling and art. I have a unique perspective because I'm also a painter. Oils on canvas, which I also use to weather my armor. I think you answered the question without realizing it. As a painter, I paint exactly what I see, but I would argue that's more of a craft. But if I'm looking at a cast shadow and see a little blue in it and decide to push up that contrast with the orange light in my scene, now I'm thinking like an artist. So when you add blue to your German gray, because it's more interesting to look at or acknowledge that olive drab looks different in various lighting conditions, you're thinking like an artist. And I I agree with that sentiment, which I think we uh, discussed. Uh, When you push reality to fit your creative expression you're an artist just don't tell anyone don't tell anyone you're an artist because no one wants to hear that (laughs) i was mainly a figure painter and sculptor for a few decades before i got back into the armor modeling i did as a kid what really grew it in me is how finishing techniques had become more artistic in nature keep up the great works great work guys uh and that's true and um that kind of ties in with our interview with mike later because i think it's everyone agrees that Mike really takes a artistic uh, approach to modeling. Uh, after all, his books are called tank art and uh, we actually get into that with them. So look, look forward to that. Hey guys, my name is Zach Grizzle from Tennessee. I must say that the past few months I have thoroughly enjoyed the show. Hearing you guys and your guests has made my commute to school go bucks much better. The, this last episode was especially nice as I am an avid treadhead. Anyway, the point of this is for a suggestion for an episode. I am a reasonably younger, 20 next month, serious modeler. And I've been part of the hobby for about eight years now. A common theme I hear from many of your guests is how they left the hobby in their teens and 20s, either because of girls or or school, etc. I think it would be cool to have a podcast with a guest or several of that age group. There are several wonderful guys around, chiefly Evan McCallum, a.k.a. Panzermeister36, who are of the younger variety. Hearing from some of these guys or having round table, a round table perhaps, would be very interesting to me, and I'm sure others. 
I've included a few photos of some of my work, and you may notice that none of it's painted. This may or may not be due to me not finishing any models this year, but you didn't hear that from me. Looking forward to many more episodes. Thanks, Zach. So, Zach, hopefully by the time this comes out, you get the uh, the masks that I sent you. So, And I would love to hear from some, some kids doing this. I say kids. I'm sorry. I know you're 20. You're, you're not a kid, but I'm 50, so... Um, but yeah, I would love to hear from, from some more younger, younger listeners and modelers. That would be awesome. All right. Looks like there's one for me here. Hey, Scott, just finished listening to episode 12 and love the round table. Even if armor is just an occasional distraction from flying things for me, a great example of how you guys are moving from strength to strength with the show. A couple of quick stories that came to mind while listening to the round table that I wanted to share. I had just returned to the hobby when I attended HeritageCon 2019 in Hamilton, Ontario. While I have a few decades at the bench under my belt, HeritageCon was the first model show I had ever attended. Belgian armor guru Christophe Poulinch, I don't know how if I said that right, sorry, Christophe, was the featured seminar guest, and no sooner had he finished that the room cleared out, save for Christophe, myself, and this uber-passionate guy which I soon figured out thanks to SMCG was none other than John Bonani. Dude, stop paying your friends to flood our mouth. Come on, man. After bombarding Kristoff with questions, well, John mostly, I just sat back and absorbed. John and I chatted for a bit and I found him every bit as engaging and encouraging as he's been on your podcast. All in all, a great ambassador for our hobby and a treat to hear him on your show. I was also jazzed to hear John mention uh, Hornet Hobbies during the roundtable. If I could give a hobby shop shout out, it would be to Dave Brown and his smaller shop that punched well above its weight. Sadly, it closed up a couple years ago. However, Dave, like John, was one of those brilliant ambassadors for our hobby, always giving of his time and love for the hobby, always good for a great and never brief conversation. And the shop was one which always rewarded an individual who's up for a bit of digging through the shells. Dave used to sponsor the Heritage Con seminar speaker. As part of that commitment, additional seminars were done in the basement man cave that John mentioned. Meg Jimenez, Michael Rinaldi were just two of the luminaries to grace that space. As much as I now would have loved to have been there, I'll have to make do with videos from some of those sessions which can be found on YouTube along with some of Dave's own tutorials. Keep up the great work, the three, four, since he's a fan, uh, JB, of you are always welcome company on the bench and in the car. All the best and be well. Chris Sieber, a.k.a. Luftrom. Chris, that was great feedback. Thank you so much. Um, John, give you a shout out here, but I also wanted to mention, thank you so much for uh, supporting the posse, both with your feedback and also your donation. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Chris. That was a really great story. And I do remember meeting you at HeritageCon. So that was, it's really awesome to, to see this all come around. And, and as you mentioned, I, I want to hit on what Chris, Chris said about the man cave and, and Dave's basement and some of those lumineers in the hobby. I believe those videos are on YouTube and they go under garage studio modeling, I believe. I can, I can post the link on our site, but it's, it's really great. Uh, you know, there's not only Mike, but uh, Mig, there's Adam Wilder and, and some of the other titans of, of the hobby. And, and it's really, really conversational. And it's it's great to put on in the background while you're building at the bench. Uh, Hen Henrik Palmberg, first episode I've listened to, and it was so good. 
Looking forward to listening to the back episodes. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Henrik. Robert Lara, I got to say I was really disappointed with this recent podcast. All that roundtable discussion goodness in just not enough time. I really could have listened to that discussion all day. By far your best episode yet. It was a great subject. Great listening to the participants discuss the hobby, both specific to armor and in general. It was entertaining and very informative. Looking forward to future roundtable discussions. And so are we. I'm, uh, we've, we've been discussing what's next, whether we're going to talk Star Wars, we're going to talk sci-fi, maybe just general sci-fi, or go on to our aircraft. Um, it's coming up. Ian McCauley. Hi, guys. Another great episode. Being an armor guy, I really enjoyed the roundtable discussion. It was terrific. Didn't want it to end. Interesting to hear how many of the guys swap out the tracks. I do on occasion, but I usually use what's in the box unless they're horrendous. I often buy resin figures to go with my kits and often change out the kit rubber tires with resin replacements. As Doug mentioned, keep the feedback coming. We love to hear from you guys. You can leave that feedback on our Plastic Posse Facebook page, or if email is more your thing, you can send that to plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com. All right, Doug. Well, thank you. That was a lot of feedback. Um, how are things over in your neck of the woods? How, uh, do you have any digressions to share with the posse? I just have a shout out. And this is not a modeler. He'll never hear this. But my brother-in-law, Robert, received his anchors this week. He is a chief petty officer in the United States Navy. Oh, that's fantastic. Well Congratulations, Rob. You know, we're all uh, big fans of Night Shift here just published a a video of weathering on his new BMR project that he's doing and just kind of wondered if you guys had seen that he's actually instead of his normal brush painting for a lot of his weathering he's kind of moved over to the airbrush for a lot of that have you guys seen that yes i have very good very good uh, episode for him yeah standard night shift above and beyond what i really enjoy is just his different approach and his style evolving every single model and the quality in which he presents the information, not only from a, you know, a video perspective, but also explanations and his accent to boot. It's just a really great listen to. Yeah. He's a, he's a freaking wizard, man. Like, I, I don't know. It's like unworldly talent it is flowing from his fingertips. Yeah. Like you were saying the, just the evolution of his, his approach and his style. It's, I mean, it's something it's, it's cool to see it happen more or less in real time. He did something in that episode that I'd like to ask about. And maybe I consider myself pretty good with an airbrush, but when he kind of blended all of his layering with leveling thinner, just throwing leveling thinner on there, have you guys ever done that? Because I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. I've done that a little bit. If you, if you put down some spray, and it's a little bit rough. You don't get that nice, really smooth kind of finish that you have, especially while it's still relatively fresh. You can put down a coat of leveling thinner, and a lot of times that'll really fix that, really smooth it out. Exactly. And I've actually had that. I've, I've done that as well when applying a flat coat where sometimes I'll get a cloudiness. And if you hit it with, I've, I've done lacquer thinner and Mr. Leveling Thinner, if you hit that flat coat with it, you know, I've been very fortunate where it resolves those cloudy issues and kind of, I don't know if it burns it out or, you know, just, it does its thing. It's why it's called unicorn tears, I guess, because it just, it works magic. Oh, it was just really cool. That's another, another, uh, another tip I, I picked up just by watching Uncle Night Shift's videos. The video is only a little over 16 minutes long. 
but you know i've watched it several times it's just really really fascinating to to watch as like like we've been saying how his style has evolved what about other social media content creators what have you guys been kind of looking at or watching um that you think are 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 pretty interesting anything new yeah i'll um i'll start that's kind of something i wanted to bring up and and do this in lieu of my my normal talk mainly because i haven't really done any (laughs) anything other than like some some armor i've mentioned it multiple times on the show like i am a huge fan of instagram for a number of reasons uh it's a fantastic platform it's easy to navigate i like the way it's laid out it's focused since it started with photos it's focused on pictures and photography which for what we do is <laughs> you know a big part of it because that's how you share what we do right so i just kind of wanted to give a little shout out i guess to to some people i follow on instagram that they're putting out some damn good work and most of them don't have very many followers it's it's, it's almost criminal that some of these people have like two or 300 followers on their social media platforms and they're putting out like top level work that you would see in magazines and you know videos on youtube and stuff so a couple of them are there's a tomas piat i think that's his name it's just tomas underscore piat he's really good there's uh leon petrelli i think is his name he does air and ground and scale he also has a youtube channel under the same name he's very uh night shift like in his presentation and i He's also from, I want to say, the same area of Europe as uh, Martin. I think they're they're close. I don't know if they live in the same country, but super talented guy. And he's got a YouTube channel that's got like a thousand subscribers. And there should be way more than that because he's very talented and his videos are, are great. There's GS Modeling is another uh, guy that is I, I feel like is putting out really good work. There's the Hill 135. He's an armor guy. And another one, just really good. And he's only got like a couple hundred followers. And, and I don't know why, because he's doing really good. There's Sprues and Glues, or Sprues underscore, underscore Glues. There's Waffen Rescue Models, uh, a guy named Pete that I've actually interacted with a bunch on Instagram. A really nice guy, primarily an armor modeler. There's Neil Sasbo. He goes by Almost Zab. I've known Neil back when we were still doing the whole blog thing and he's kind of essentially just gone over to Instagram full time. He doesn't update his um, like blogger anymore. And then there's another guy uh, named Landon Fisher and his Instagram tag is Bolter and Bristle. He is um, a Raptors, a space Marine player like myself. And he has some of the best looking space Marines I've seen. They're, they're fantastic. He, um, I'll I'll probably post some of his stuff on the Facebook page. He's so good. Um, and he's actually, I think, getting ready to do his first airplane. He's doing a Spitfire, I think, for his dad. Um, but he's got a really good Instagram profile. And I've talked to him outside of Instagram on, on Facebook. And we were in a group together. But, uh, yeah, I just wanted to give these uh, guys a little shout out. And hopefully, if you're know if you in Instagram, you can um, – I'll, I'll link the, all these guys to our, our Facebook page. And, you know, go uh, check them out. And – see what they're doing because i think they're they're underappreciated john you generate a lot of creative content through your jb closet modeler page on facebook um what kind of uh, content do you do you like to consume so that's an interesting question and i like the segment because 
TJ is really focused on Instagram and I'm not there that much. I'm, I'm a cursory observer, but I don't post there that much. I'm mainly on Facebook and the guys that I'm following and, and I like Facebook only a little bit more because it, you know, it has the album feature and a, and a better way to track certain updates. Uh, but all platforms are great. And two guys that I really love their work and they have pages that could use more followers because it's, again, it's just stellar work. Both of them, coincidentally, armor modelers. Uh, one is the name of the page is Fuzzy Foreigner Models. You know, it's a gentleman, Greg, out of the Pacific Northwest. He's doing fantastic work, does allied and access subjects. Just just a great modeler, really nice guy to chat with. He's doing he's just doing solid content. Um, and he goes through some of the techniques he uses. And it really is just pushing the limit, I think, on some of his finishing techniques as well. And his, his building skills are, are awesome. And the other gentleman I'd like to plug is SD Scale Modelers, Sam Dwyer out of Australia. He's been around the community a really long time. Um, but you know his his page on Facebook could certainly use more followers because his his stuff is is next level as well. Not only from a finishing standpoint, but from a historical standpoint as well. He he really goes into the minutia when creating Panther tanks or other some you know some of that German armor and even modern stuff as well. His his Australian Abrams is probably one of the best I've ever seen. And what's interesting, he uses a lot of acrylic paints in his finishing methods, which I've tried to master. And he's he's just pushing the envelope in that regard. So I'd, I'd like to just you know throw those two pages out, and and I'll link them to our page as well, just so everyone can can follow along because they're they're two great creators. This is a really interesting discussion, and I've got a couple shout outs I want to give, but. Let's let's take a look at it in future episodes and maybe making this a regular part of the show. Yeah, yep. I agree. And then um my last my couple of shout outs are gonna go to you, JB, and also Dukes. Uh, you and Matt have both been working on sort of outside of your comfort zone builds. You know, Matt's normally an aircraft and sometimes armor modeler, and you obviously are primarily an armor modeler, but you guys have both been working on the DOS work, 172nd scale, World War I uh, German U-boat. How's that coming along? It's coming along really good. I actually have it all taped up. It's sitting on my bench right now. After we're done recording, I'm hoping to paint the black sections and do some distressing. You know, I also have to give a shout out for this. There's a modeler I follow on Instagram called 70 Skid. His name is Scott Withers. He's out of Michigan. Another stellar modeler, he's really made a name for himself for U-boats. He did one called, I think it was like the Wolf's Lap for the Last Breath or Sinking Wolf. It was a you know World War II German sub, uh, submarine that was sinking. Anyway, his finishing style, I'm taking a lot of inspiration from, and I hope to employ it uh, on the weathering steps of my U-boat in this coming week. So again, 70 skid on Instagram. He does armor models as well, uh, but his his water effects and the way he finishes U-boats uh, is second to none. And I've met him in person a couple times, so super nice guy. Now it's time for our main segment. You're going to love this interview with Mike Rinaldi. Really brings a great perspective to this hobby and is always inspirational in his words. So have a listen, enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. Welcome to another Plastic Posse podcast interview. 
We are honored today to be joined by Michael Rinaldi. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Got TJ Holler from Virginia. Hey, guys. Doing? And Doug Smith from uh, here in Utah with me as well. Hello. For those of a uh, few of you modelers out there who might not be familiar with Mike, he's a graphic designer, artist, photographer, author. He's also known for his many contributions to model building and weathering techniques in magazines, internet articles, YouTube videos, and on armor building forums. He's also the owner and sole employee of Rinaldi Studio Press, where he is best known for his high-quality tank art and other series of modeling books. So, Mike, tell us what's new with you and with uh, Rinaldi Studio Press. Thanks for that, uh, that nice intro, Scott. I appreciate that. Um, I didn't know I did all those things. That's, that's an impressive uh, <laughs> array of things there. I thought I just painted a few things every now and then. Rumor has it you've been seen in the back room shipping orders. Yeah, that is that is kind of another big hat I have to wear. I love the employee comment because I always joke with my friends that my boss is a real a-hole sometimes. And being a one-man company, that's kind of <laughs> one of those people let go. They're like, what? Yeah, it's a bit of a, a whip cracker sometimes. Um, yeah, no, things good. Uh, it's 2021. It's a new year. And, and we just had a, a recent printing of a book arrive uh, right before Christmas that we've been trying to get out in this in this kind of interesting planet Earth right now. The shipping conversation with COVID is, is a really layered one, if people aren't familiar, but we, we are a global company in terms of who our customer base is. It's about 60% international, about 40% here in the U.S. So we do ship a lot of product around the world and, and with everything going on and it, become an expert in, in what country has what embargo against what type of shipments at what point in time. So it's, it's keeping me busy and it's keeping me up late a little bit, but yeah, we're, we're working our way through some stuff and uh, we have some new books coming out old, old news in terms of what the books are, but they're finally going to be showing up pretty soon. So we're pretty happy about that too. You have a background in design and you can really see this in the quality of your publications. How do you think your background in um, design has really affected obviously your books, but also uh, your modeling? Um, 100%, I think is the, the short answer. Uh, my Background is is also um, my college education. I went to I went to a regular. I'm from Los Angeles, and I went to just a general. Uh, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I went to Long Beach State, which is just a, a commuter school. Uh, I don't want to call it a general school, but I went just for just traditional engineering stuff. And I was kind of frustrated as as an early engineer student. Uh, heavy math, heavy science, wasn't my cup of tea coming out of high school. And I always doodled and sketched and drew stuff on the side. And, and that led me down the road of, of how do I do that for like a living? Because everybody would say that, well, you hate doing all the math and stuff. So why don't you do the art stuff? But I didn't know how to do that. So I uh, ended up going to school for it and got a degree in transportation design in Los Angeles. And unfortunately, when I graduated, which was about 2008, 2009, uh, I was about 35 years old. So I've been in college for a while. And the financial crisis hit in the United States, if you guys kind of remember when that all went down, when a lot of car companies were having problems, the government had to bail out General Motors and, and those guys. Uh, I was a young intern at that time, which meant there was no jobs at that time for us. So I had to kind of start doing my own thing. And that turned into freelance design and, and graphic design. And so I took the degree in design that I had and started my own kind of, you know, just earning some money from it. Part of that education was on painting and colors, where there's a lot of, in, in that world, a color theory. You learned about color theory. You learned about what red, what red, yellow, and blue primary colors do. 
on, on just a you know all that kind of stuff that plays into when I started painting models uh, looking for a job, which is how that all kind of bounced back. I, I was in the interview process. I found a box in the garage of old, you know, Tamiya kits that were my dad's. It's kind of that classic story, built models as a, as a wee lad, you know, took a 20 year break. And then all of a sudden you kind of trip over it one day somewhere and, and we're all of a sudden building models again. Um, and that's when the web forms all blew up. You know, that's when the first of the heavy web yeah. forms really started. So combining that all together to that answer is it's a hundred percent because all the design stuff that I learned back then I've employed moving forward. I mean, including a lot of the techniques about looking at a competitor's product. One of the things about tank art in particular and SM books is I looked at and being a contributor to some of those publications to begin with, I looked at what they were producing, you know, the kind of material, the kind of content, what the conversation was all about. And that, to me, was what led to how the Tank Art book, in particular, that's what I started with, like the conversation inside of those books, what that was about, why the photography is why it is. Because I got tired of looking at, at magazines and books from other people where the photos are too small or the photo didn't tell you anything. Or, or it was just, you can't discern literally what the author is trying to, trying to convey. And it's that kind of pulling the curtain back Wizard of Oz conversation of, okay, let's, let's turn this another way. All that comes from my design education. All that comes from working at a car company and looking at competitor A and going, well, we're going to make a competing model car to that. How do you do that? And you start analyzing the strengths and weaknesses of all your competitors. So that's how that all started, really. And it, it does come from directly from the design education. I'm glad you brought up that point because aside from the content, which obviously is terrific, your publications themselves as products are very high quality and they've got some pretty revolutionary features, you know, very high quality paper and printing, the lay flat binding and the layout that's designed to actually be used at the workbench. So, I mean, do you feel that the quality of your books is something that sets them apart in, in the same way that your content does or maybe even to a greater degree? Um, you know, it almost sounds like bragging because I, I hate to talk about myself like this and what we're trying to do. But yeah, the, the, the format size, I chopped two inches off the top of it because when it's laying on a bench in eight and a half by 11 American size format, it's a big piece of landscape that takes up a lot of space on a hobby bench. So by shortening up a little bit, uh, we're able to save some room and it's a, it is a little bit easier to deal with that notice where uh, an A4 or an eight and a half by 11 format's a bit cumbersome sometimes. So there is that. I, I looked at the format. I looked at those things to say, okay, well, how can I improve this, this, and this, and this? And you can't have good photography if you don't have good paper. I mean, it doesn't play. You can have amazing photos, but if it's on crappy paper, you know, it doesn't work. And so, because you just lose a lot of that effort. So yeah, the paper is a huge thing. And I learned that from cutting my teeth as a graphic designer, working for other clients, getting yelled at and screamed at it. You know, this looks like F, you know, because we didn't, we didn't do the right thing. And so I remember those things and I remembered kind of, oh yeah, this is, this is the kind of a paper brand level that you want to be playing with, you know, that range. And there's a whole technical conversation to paper, you know, what it is. And, and, and it's very much like hobby paints. If you don't know what A from B is, you're going to be in trouble. So, and then the binding, you know, the, I, I can't stand when, when stuff closes back on itself when you're trying to read it, if it's laying open flat to reference it. So I put in the lay flat binding so that it stays open. Yeah, those are all done because I was a model builder reading other other companies' products going on. You know, how could we fix this? How is how could we do better here? 
Um, and we explored many formats. I tried, you know, looking at different things and did some prototyping with different companies to see what, what worked for us. And that was ultimately what came out of the tank art books. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that's something that, you know, when you're looking at the beautiful photos, it's probably easy maybe to take those features for granted, but they're very, very important as to how the book is used, how it holds up over time, you know, how it stays in your collection from project to project, that kind of thing. I do want to have a contest down the road uh, where the where the most weathered, well-worn tank art book is on display, and I'll give somebody something for that because I, that's, <laughs> I, I kind of want to do that. You know what I mean? I want to see somebody really give it a run. You know, I don't want them on the shelf being pristine and never read it. And some guys are like that. They're super white glove about it. They're like, oh, man, I can't. I'm like, no, no, that's the opposite. You get in there and get it dirty. You know, take it with you everywhere. You know, see how it does hold up. <laughs> well, can you blame them, though? Because, I mean, those those books are beautiful. So I, so I don't blame yeah, people I for not I wanting know. to damage their books. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I do. I, I crack up because I'm like, oh, this is it. And we use, for example, like the paper for the cover paper is, is a matte lamination. It's the process that gives a kind of velvety textural quality to it. I had to learn what that was. And I, I was using a different process, a different aqueous coating process, which was I used a matte version on the, on the early gray cover books, the first two editions from 2012 and 2013 of Tank Art 1 and 2. And I didn't like it, and so I switched it. But the, that matte lamination is a little delicate because it, it does scuff. It does take stains like like carpet does. Like it's hard to get something out if you stain it. So um, it's not as durable in that regard. But at the same time, I, I, you know, I, I try to just present it as I, I try to find stuff that I was liking. Okay, like I would see somebody else's product, and it didn't have to be scale modeling at all. I just I saw a book or saw whatever, and I'm like, I love this. And I'd try to figure out how to do that, how to make that, how do you get that produced. That's its own little conversation, too, by the way. There's a lot of those little things. Like, I had to learn what the binding process was and what makes a lay-flat binding in a soft cover book, like what that actually is. And if you guys have them and you open them, it's hard to see because it's a translucent material, but there's, there's a gauzing. What they do is they glue all the paper together and they do all the trimming and stuff in the binding section. And then there's a, there's a thin piece of gauze. It's a transparent gauze that goes against that glue. It dries against that, and it doesn't dry against the spine of the cover, allowing them to separate when you fold them out flat so that there's a, you can see the gap physically behind the pages in, in the spine, and that's what allows it to stay open like that. So, yeah, I had to learn some of that stuff. I just love Tank. I mean, I like them all, but Tank Art too. I've, I've used it so many times. I actually had to have my wife take your binding apart and spiral bound it. I think you told me that. I think you mentioned that to me one time. Yeah, the poor, the poor binding. I mean, I just used it and used it, and you know, with the Firefly and the Churchill and all those projects. You know, I just I, I read those. I've read those articles and looked at those pictures so many times. The poor binding didn't stand a chance. I explored spiral binding. Actually, there's a few different kinds of spiral bind type products you can you can purchase from printers. And there's some encase them in a cover where you open it up and there's like a spiral bind inside of it. Uh, they get pretty expensive, unfortunately, and they're a little bit on the heavier side, too, with the metal, and, and you have some other issues with shipping and moving them around the world a little bit. So I, I backed off of that because I thought about it. I'm like, oh, that's kind of the best of both worlds, you know, that, but it just wasn't really feasible with what I'm trying to do on, on a volume scale, per se. So Yeah, totally get that. Well, one other uh, kind of feature question, or I, I guess not really feature, but another thing for me that sets Tank Art and some of your other books apart from other books in this genre is that you don't just focus on the photos, the models themselves. You really get into the why as much or more as you get into the how. You know, something that 
Will Patterson, when he was on our show, we were kind of talking about that a little bit, how in your books, you really get into philosophy and the approach as much as use this paint or use this color. Um, how important do you feel that is as part of the mix of these uh, books? I'd actually, um, this, this, this conversation I've had quite a few times. Over the years, before I started the company, even just on the web forums or, or being a contributor to other publications, it's always that conversation about what you're doing. Like, hey, you know, and if we're all just kind of shooting the shit around the bar, and this is kind of how it developed, there's always those conversations at the shows where the best part of every show is hanging out with the buddies or meeting new modelers, and you're just kind of talking about what you're doing. But there's always somebody going, hey, how'd you do this? How'd you do this? And how'd you do this? And in, in that vernacular of kind of going back to the art school stuff, I learned in art school is a very competitive environment in and of itself because there's egos involved. And when you put something on a table, whether it's a, a scale model or a design or something, ABC, whatever it is, there's a competitive aspect and an ego aspect that's involved in a lot of guys, people, I don't want to say it's not all guys, but most of us, we don't tell you everything we're doing. There's always a little bit of a trick or something up our sleeve. We're just kind of, we hold it back a little bit. Some, and some guys don't want to tell you anything. Some guys are total, you know, jerks about it. And they're like, eh, good luck. I did this little thing. And I didn't want to be that. I wanted the company to be, the products to be 100%. Everything is out there on the table. So everything I'm doing, I'm telling you how I'm doing it. And it, it developed into the how and the why. is kind of the basic format to discuss things in. Because I wanted to express to everybody, if I'm doing something and it's green, well, why is it that shade of green? You know, why is it not this yeah. shade of green? Or why is it this paint? And, and we're talking about like shades of olive drab. We're talking about shades of, you know, German armor colors. Like we're, we're starting to rivet count colors. And that conversation of just getting that on paper so you guys could, could absorb it and then make your own decisions from that is what I was trying to achieve with that conversation and the why and the how. And that's really the cornerstone. If I follow that format, it's pretty simple for me. You know, all you got to do is just tell them what you're doing um, and be honest about it. And that's, that's really what the heart of that part of it comes. Because if you read a lot of magazines, and I did for years, guys don't tell you anything. They literally don't tell you anything. And because I don't need to know what brush you're using or, you know, if you use brand A paint in this color, that's not telling me a whole lot to be truthful about stuff. Yeah. Why, why is it that one? You know, is there a reason you follow in this chemical brand or this type of chemical? Is there a reason you're, you're doing this yellow over the white and why is the white, this particular white? It, it, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this that guys just don't tell you in, in publishing. And uh, that doesn't make a, the value of the book at 45, 50 bucks. You don't need me to tell you it's green. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what the photos are for. So exactly. that's really the heart of yeah. it. It really is getting to that, that core of what it is we're trying to achieve. These are questions that 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 we've we've kind of kicked around, and we uh, are curious. What new books are you uh, looking at for 2021? To start the conversation in 2021 is to get the old books from 2018 forward produced that I've got announced on the website that they've been the pre-orders and they're a bit of a, a sticking point. Scott and I talked about this a little bit, uh, just giving a rundown. And I put out a newsletter recently from the company, and and a lot of people prior to this are pre-order customers. So there's the books on the website, SM4, 5, and 6, the technique guide books that I'm going to be developing that are coming out, um, and then the reprint of the tank art series that are still due to come out. Uh, that's the first part of 2021. I spent most of 2020 from March, I would say realistically, through September finding a new supplier for the company. Uh, we went through from late 2017 through 2019 
right before COVID, literally the Thursday before it all hit in the United States about March 8th. I've uh, been trying to work in, in Asia and trying to expand the company's product portfolio through working with companies in Asia because they give a good price, of course. And, uh, that's kind of the direction I was taking things. And that didn't work out. So I switched directions in 2020. And I did find a, a new supplier. Uh, they're in Europe. Uh, I mentioned uh, to Scott in our, in our previous conversation that it, and those of you that will start seeing the book in, in person, the printing from Tank R4 is probably the, the reprint that just happened. It's probably the best technical printing, excuse me, that I've had to date since 2012. So the Tank R4 printing for that book, the quality, the everything, the technical specs about that book, the photography, everything, how it all came out in Tank R4 second edition uh, is as good as I've ever seen it. So we're really happy with our supplier right now, uh, which means SM4, Tank R2 reprint. And that Tank R2 reprint, to Scott's comments earlier, is, is a, almost a whole new book. Uh, it's heavily updated. It's the most heavily updated of all of them. And it is because it's the oldest remaining and it has to be brought up to the same specs of all the other books. So it has a lot of, of updates and, and kind of just re- refreshing some conversations. Oh, man, my, my banking hates you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it won't be like if you have the old one, you're not going it, to it's not going to be that to where it's just if I'm talking about hairspray in an older book that's written eight years ago, I'm just trying to bring that level of conversation to a 2020 level of conversation in hairspray, like that yeah. kind of an idea. I'm not trying to like put in new work. Like there's no, like I'm not taking the Firefly out or the, or the Persian or anything like that. that's not coming out or anything like that. It's just, you might have a few more photos for those. The conversation will probably be freshened up and cleaned up and grammatically better superior, if you will. Okay. But yeah. from that conversation forward, which is just getting all that done and getting everything done and then moving forward, you're probably going to start seeing aircraft finally. I know a lot of guys have been chomping at the bit for that. Uh, you'll see more science fiction, fantasy, sci-fi subjects uh, heavily favored. There'll be nice. some more armor. Yeah, there'll be, there'll be a continuation of armor in general. But then there'll also be uh, a large part will be civilian parts as well coming in terms of what's coming. And I'd like to say the date. I love to give dates. I've realized every time I give a date, it's always wrong. So we're looking at the second half of 2021 of new material in terms of what's not been shown on the website yet or pre-ordered available. Very cool. You did hit on something we were going to ask you about, and that is, is the science fiction subjects that a lot of people, we, we do talk about science fiction a lot on this show. Any, any star Wars in there? Any star Wars? Yeah. You can expect oh yeah, of course. The, the Bandai oh. stuff is, is revolutionary. Bandai is a, you know, there's, there's a podcast you can have just about model companies. And if you're going to have that conversation, if those people in the other genres don't know what Bandai do and how they do it. Bandai, there's the Tamiya conversation, which I embolden as that's a fantastic company and probably sometimes second best to Bandai. Bandai and Tamiya, they do it the right way. And Bandai in particular does some very special things that if you've never built one of their higher end kits, uh, whether it's a Star Wars or it's a Gundam, they do some stuff. <laughs> they do some things. And, and it's an impressive amount of engineering, and, and I fully support everything they do, even when they don't do it right or the best that they can. They, they, they're fantastic. Even their shitty kits are great. It, it's kind of funny, though. <laughs> yeah. They don't make a bad kit. They don't have, you know, and I've, I've been building Bandai kits for about 18 months straight now. My hands are pretty deep into Bandai right now. I haven't come across a set of instructions where one step is wrong, where one part is misnumbered, where one thing is not how it should. Like, it's, they're so detailed down the road. Uh, and I built a Hasekawa kit the other day, and guess what? There was three or four steps in there. Just they weren't, they weren't marked. They, wait, where'd that part come from? Like there was no part <laughs> number next to it on the. And you're like, wait a minute. 
Bandai doesn't do that. You know, they're 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 a solid kit. So there's a lot of Bandai Star Wars coming. They're going to be heavily favored, I would say, because you know the Ravel stuff to me was a little bit more geared for that first time modeler concept. Uh, so probably won't touch on Ravel Star Wars kits too much. I don't think I don't really have anything in in the queue for that. But there's a lot of Bandai. I've got two books worth of put it to you this way. If you want a teaser, I've got two books worth of Bandai kits built ready to paint. So, and we're talking tank archives books, not SM books. So that's that's just to let you know. I'll tell you, Star Wars is my jam. So when you mm. when you say you're going to be publishing Star Wars stuff, I am so stoked. I so was there, stoked. 1977, Los Angeles, seven years old, standing in line, seeing it the first time. So I'm with you guys. Don't worry, I've, I've got your back on this one. And there's there's I was seven years old, Newport Beach. Yeah, yeah. Doug, are you dancing right now? <laughs> no, but I'm a. I'm I'm kind of bouncing in my chair a little bit. It'll and it'll be focused on the stuff I can actually put what you know me for into. Like I'm not going to be making a C C3PO model out of the gate. That's not what I'm focused on. It's going to be the A wings. It's going to be you know X wings. It's going to be your traditional ship type conversations of painting and weathering because that's the core of it. I think what we're all talking about here. Uh, there will be some droid stuff for sure. But, you know, like the character figures and some of the more figure-based stuff, probably not right away. It's going to be mostly geared towards, you know, what we can really see from what RSP traditionally shows you and then moving forward. Kind of like how SM3 was traditionally showing you what I was doing with painting and weathering and putting on a Gundam. So it's kind of those things will be the initial forays into, into Star Wars. Very cool. Is there any plans to put any of the new books di out digitally or at all, is it all going to be uh, in print? That's a, that's another conversation. It's an interesting one because I've gone back and forth many years over what to do with that. Part of that conversation is just hinged on, uh, I've got too much on my plate and I haven't gotten around to it. The rest of it is part of it's piracy and, and copyright infringement. There's a bit of that. Right. All the tanker books have been cut up and, and, and put into PDFs from China and Russia uh, for $3, you know, that conversation. So once you PDF and digitize something, you can't kind of undo it almost. So I've been a little bit hesitant to do that. What I would probably do, and this is kind of where I've taken things, is that the digital content will probably be realistically standalone content and or broken down content. Like you can buy a chapter from a book individually if you wanted to versus being putting the whole book as a digital PDF online. Maybe some of the smaller books, yes. But as far as, you know, tank art as a PDF, as a whole, like tank art one PDF, I don't know if I'm really going to want to do that because once I do that, I can't undo that. Uh, and we're a book publisher. You know, I'm a print first guy. Digital is not my primary domain, if you will. Like I'm all about old school paper a little bit, to be truthful. Okay. So, so that, that kind of goes in hand in hand with, with the other question I had here, which was. Armor modeling, it's got this huge following on YouTube. You've got uh, Plasmo yeah. and Night Shift and people like that. Do you have any plans on uh, to, to yeah, that's, posting that's, this content and that's to also YouTube? Part of that. Too much on my plate. I, I being mired in, in in a delayed situation where you're you know I'm fighting two years of delays with certain products right now. I've just not had the time to put forth for the YouTube channel. And the reason is I just don't want to just sit at the desk and do something, you know, even, even MIG's doing that. Like, I don't think you guys, I think I need to do something a little bit more specific. And, and it kind of plays into everything or in all these studio presses about is like the tanker books are specific and they're designed a certain way. I think I really want to, I'm going to try to, and I'll probably fail because I think the, the video editing world is a whole another cup of tea, right? another hat to wear. 
how do I want to play this up? What do I want to do? Like, for example, Adam Wilder, we all know him. He did the wonderful KB1 series where he broke it down. I think it's 24 parts or whatever it was on the, on one model, breaking it down and just the whole thing, you know, A to Z. Do you do it that way? Do I, do I show you behind the scenes stuff? Do I do a mix of things? There's a ton of conversation about that in my head about what to do on the video side of life for RSP uh, and slash Michael Rinaldi and whatever. And I've even rebrand. I even got a whole potential new brand coming if I if I go down that road. Uh, I've investigated logos and doing some other stuff where maybe I expand this out and in, in kind of a different point of view, so to speak. Because there's a lot of ways to do this. You know, I I, I am friends with the people at Tested.com. You know, Adam Savage and those guys. Like I, I kind of pay attention to what they do and how they treat the hobby in terms of this. I pay attention to what goes on on the, on the, on the nuts and bolts side of, you know, guys just painting and building models or the review side of things. So it's a lot of not, and I'm avoiding the specific answer because I just haven't made a decision yet in terms of when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen, but it will happen. I'll give you that much. Cool. Exciting stuff. Yeah. Awesome. I would say realistically to that answer. Also, I would say like, you're probably going to see from me, Grab the book, guys. Turn to page 56 of whatever, and I'm going to video that for you is what I'll probably do and do a replication. I think that'll be a, a way to use video. An easy way is to bolster the print content so that you got the book as a customer. And I, I keep my core as a business model. I keep my core customer base happy. And maybe there's Patreon and some other stuff down the road, too. But realistically, like the oil paint rendering, it's a great one, or hairspray. Like when I talk about how to hold the model arm's length and spray with the hairspray, you know, videoing that for you guys to show you how to do that is, you know, those are going to be real important videos. So there'll be a lot of that if, if, if that helps your answer a little bit. Oh, absolutely. So you've talked a little bit about sci-fi. You mentioned civilian stuff, uh, civilian models, railroad models, anything like that. Absolutely. I've got a nice stash. Uh, there's a, there, and, and after being around a while, a lot of guys are like, Hey, can you do that? You know, you get a little bit of this, Hey, would you mind building this model? Or what do you think of doing this? I've had a lot of people send me like railroad cars and rail stock and to practice on and play with and to get me familiar with it. So yeah, there will be uh, the rail question will be coming. It is kind of a, it's kind of a fair payback because a lot of the original weathering that I was studying was all real. There's a, and I, and I'm, I should have pulled the book out. It's an older book from like, I would say the seventies and it's black and white. Um, but it's one of the old railroad models from, from that generation, kind of our Linden generation that did a lot of early weathering and stuff. And cut my teeth way back when reading it. Um, I forget that. I want to say, I want to say John Woodman. I don't know if that's right or not. It could be wrong. But yeah, there'll be rail. There'll be uh, a lot of trucks as well and probably construction equipment. And then there'll be, there'll be a genre of military turned civilian vehicles as well. Cause I always think that's a fun project to work on. It's always a, a great, great story to write about. What about what about some of those classic Le Mans cars and racers that you're so fond of? Anything like that? <laughs> I I don't have anything planned on the on the actual car side of life a little bit, and that's because uh, and Scott and I have talked about this a little bit. I personally feel like the way figure modeling is, it's a very different type of modeling. When you're talking civilian racing type vehicles, that's a there's you know there's a one of my uh, model buddy friends uh, who's an amazing modeler if you don't know who he is clay kemp back east does all the nascar stuff and the stuff he does blows me away i'm like dude i can't do that I, you're crazy i cannot touch he'll he'll solder up you know frames for sprint cars and he does a lot of scratch building does a lot of metal work you know turned aluminum rims and uh wires up the engines all those kind of things you know uh, i want to i would love to 
it's just way down the road for what I think is a company product I'm going to do personally. I just, there's so many, like just to get through the star Wars conversation is going to take me a couple of years, you know, truth be told. So there's a lot of stuff ahead of it. Scott, to be honest with you. I want to, but it's, it's just, yeah, maybe I retire on that stuff. I don't know. <laughs> so besides modeling and the publishing business, do you have any other hobbies or interests that you uh, spend time with? Yeah, I wish. Um, <laughs> I get a coffee down the road, you know, I don't know. It, it, this is a seven day a week job guys. And that's, that's, I, you know, I get that kind of, do you ever build a model for yourself? Kind of a relatable question and no, the answer. I, I'm a, I'm a normal guy, you know, football season's coming to an end. That's always a bit of a sad time for me. I'm a huge football fan, college and pro. I follow it, you know, pretty tightly. Uh, so sports are, they do play up a bit. Coming from Los Angeles, you know, we have all the pro teams and college teams down there, but living in Portland now for almost a decade, you know, it's a one team town per se. And that's, that's been kind of a fun experience. Most of my downtime here is either family. My family's up here, uh, parents and, and, and siblings and stuff are up here. So downtime is either with them and family, or it's kind of a nice social scene where a lot of my friends are in the restaurant business or bar business. So we go and hang out. So it's kind of just socializing, I guess you could say. I don't have like, I don't, I don't knit blankets on the side or I don't paint some paintings on the side or because if I'm not working on a model, I'm falling behind and that's, I'm, I'm behind scheduled as it is. So the answer is unfortunately, I just don't have a lot. I mean, I watch Formula One a lot, you know, so there's a racing connotation, sports connotation, but there's nothing I don't say I do, you know, photography wise that the camera's on the tripod by the workbench. <laughs> that's where it stands. So I don't. I don't even take pictures of the trees, you know, anymore. Gotcha. All righty. Hey, TJ, you've got, you got some questions. I do. Um, in some past episodes, we've kind of broached the subject on whether or not modeling is art. I guess what we just established is it kind of depends. That's kind of what, what we came up with, but, uh, what's, what is your personal philosophy when it comes to whether or not modeling is considered art? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I could I could short answer that by saying, well, the, I, it's called tank art. And also because I'm, I've am i got that art back, like literally went to an art school and I, I was sitting next to kids that were, you know, learning how to paint in the classic form of what we think art is about. I've had this conversation multiple times over the years. I've, I had a benefactor about 10 years ago that was really into this and he was going to build kind of a, a, a museum, if you will, to the scale modeling stuff that we're doing and, and uh, it's come and gone in terms of, of the answer is yes, absolutely. And the reason I say that is because if I were to sit down and, and, and I don't care what generation it is, it could be a thousand years ago or whatever. If I make a ceramic cup and I put it on a pedestal in, in a building in a room and you come in and look at it, if I build a tiger tank and put on a pedestal in a room and you come and look at it, what's the difference of whether that you consider that art or not? It's, it's not relevant to the conversation of what is art that that is that is like what is life it, it starts to become so big of a question it, it you kind of defeat the purpose by trying to answer it all the time and what i mean by that is if you just go and do the work to the best that you can and it's it's revered in a certain way by people that view it i think you've already crossed the boundary of, of again it doesn't matter if it's a scale model i think that's kind of we get too hung up on that that it's, a, that it's a miniature of a vehicle. When, it, when a human has created something, whether it's, it's assembled from a, from a kit in what we talk about in our world, or it's they've cut it from wood, or they've built it from plaster, whatever it is, or they, they paint it two-dimensional on a canvas with, with paint, 
they're still doing the, the human brain and what it's trying to do and all this kind of stuff that it's trying to achieve with that process to me becomes it's an artistic process because you're using that creative side of your of, of, of your world even if you're if you're building a cabinet that is you know to a, to a set of drawing plans you know that person that created that square box cabinet had to still create that square box cabinet so yeah i, I always think that that answer is yes it's art how far you want to take it you know if you if you really want it to be if we quantify art as beauty museums if that's the conversation you know a lot of people do that's the if, if it's on a wall in a museum it's art well i'll put a model on a pedestal and, and the japanese do it you know there's there's plenty of shows in japan where they put this stuff that we talk about you know some people call it toys but in our world it's you know a scale model and they'll put on a pedestal in a, in a room and you can walk around and take a look at it so if you put it in a case in a cabinet I would say the answer is yes. To what degree? I don't, you know, I don't really care. To be honest with you. you know, I'm not here to, to, to debate the Mona Lisa versus, you know, somebody's nice Panther tank, you know, that or Sherman, you know, I don't really care about that stuff. So, um, but yeah, I think, I think modeling is art. And what I also like to push towards that conversation is the art, the artist slash author, I talk about it as the author of the project. The reason I put art in the name a little bit, too, is to kind of push them towards being a little bit more creative. Sometimes a Sherman tank is pretty, pretty boring tank to look at. You have to be somewhat of an artist to push forward some creative elements into it to make the piece a little bit more interesting visually. Now, you can be 100% historically accurate to a photo, and that's fine, but there's also that little extra. And that's kind of what I'm pushing the greater hobby into when I put tank art, art in the name is, Put a little bit of that in. Put a little love into it. It doesn't always have to be super by the numbers, one, two, three, four, five, you know, color by numbers type stuff. And that's, you know, the exhaust stain on the side of a Mustang. You put a little bit extra into it. And that's kind of the art side of it to push out the creative element to make the viewers a little more interested in what you're doing. It's, it's all relative to that, too, at the same time. So the answer is yes. I, I do think modeling is art for sure. All right, cool. Um, so I'm sure you've heard this from more than one person but uh, you are one of my modeling influences and I'm sure Scott could say the same thing. I'm sure yeah. a thousand other people could say the same thing. I pay Scott to say it though. I mean, don't get me wrong. Those are residual checks that he gets in the mail to promote me. So yeah, don't, don't think it's anything special. So I get, so my question is who are your modeling influences? Uh, that's a good one. Um, uh, there's a lot that I think, you know, and I always feel bad because I'm going to leave some people out. Uh, a lot of them are still around, thankfully. They're, they're friends of mine, most of them. I'll start with the big one, you know, and, and we're not friends. I will say this so people don't, and we're not like buddy buddies. Like, right, when we know each other, we'll shake hands and stuff, but like, we're, we're barely, you know, talk or anything like that. But Mig was always one of the first because he was one of the most influential uh, in the armor modeling world at the time. Mig and Adam are both what I would consult, consider the, the initial showing me that this was out there you know i i returned to the scale model 20 years later and i didn't even know you could do this kind of stuff you know this was available people were doing these kind of it was it was Megan and adam and, and kind of leading that that charge um and then there's a lot of people in europe um mario eans is, is is a really close friend of mine we're kind of pen pals we, we exchange emails on a regular basis and he's a belgian modeler and he just the, the, his methodology and and, and associate of his Mario Eanes, uh, Mario Eanes and Marin Van Gills. Marin Van Gills is another one. Um, Phil Stusinkas, who developed the hairspray technique. Yeah. Uh, his original works, like his early stuff, 
or before he stopped making armor models. Phil's Phil's work is phenomenal. Like it just you're just like what the what you just get out of here, dude. You just stop this stuff. So there's you know those those are some head those are some names that pop into my head right away when I get asked that question, especially because it's so much armor and it was early influence and uh, you know Maroons in particular. So uh, there's a lot of conversations about like putting down a pin wash. Just that conversation alone, and the way he did it, the way he methodically goes about putting down a pin wash, changed how I approached how I do all that stuff. And it was reading one of his articles in a magazine where he talked about it. Uh, and showcase it. And, and I was just like, okay, I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> and it was, that's kind of, you know, that, that's, those guys are, are huge. Today, in today's vernacular, especially with like Instagram on the phone, uh, and there's a, there's a ton. I don't know a lot of the names because all the names are like avatar names or they're, they're like fake names. But there's a lot of people in the Instagram world that I'll, I'll scroll through and I get a lot of influence now from, from the Japanese culture, sci fi culture, the guys that, go deep into the Gundam world in terms of customization, in terms of like, I look at some of the stuff and they're, they're nuts. Like their brain is so far out there, but it's really good. Like just food to feed your own brain with. And so I use the, the I use the social media apps more for kind of seeing what else is out there. Like I'm pretty well versed in the armor world per se, and even the aircraft world. Like I know who's doing what and see what. And so I pay attention you know, in the aircraft side of it, I'm trying to think of it. I'm trying to, I'd say there's, there's an Australian, Adam O'Brien. He did some of the earlier, in my opinion, probably, well, by earlier, I mean, four or five, six years ago, really hyper-realistic aircraft modeling. That was, I don't even know if he gets enough credit for it. Beautiful work from him. I'm trying to think of something. There's a lot, there's, there's a lot, but that, those are kind of, you know, it's mostly a Belgian quartet of people. And then the original kind of armor guys of Meg and Adam in terms of, weathering and, and what's possible with that and you know even the early filters and pigment works and stuff like those are huge influences to what i started to do for sure yeah so i'm glad you mentioned um uh instagram i i've talked about it on some other episodes we've had and it's most of the people i've talked to they're not like really into it but i've been trying to push it to people that i know I'm like gold you know mind. guys you, you need to check this out like yeah it's a gold mine it's not like Facebook. That, no. That's the, I, I like Facebook just fine, but it, what I've been telling them is you can prune your feed to just people that only post whatever, right? Yeah, you can manipulate the algorithms. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it, it's easier. You don't have to. You don't have to worry about bullshit. Essentially, I mean yeah. that's what it boils down to. Like, I'll open Instagram and I just get flooded with amazing things. Absolutely. But I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's, that's great. They also do the, um, you can do collections on the back end. You can save a photo into a collection. And I have folders on my Instagram back end of just like Gundam folder, train folder, trucks. Like you can break it down and save them and reference them later, which is super powerful. Because if you need like F-14 Tomcat reference for the Tamiya model, when you sit down and do the 40 go one in three years, when I actually get to it, I need references that I remember. Like, where was that photo? And you can save them. You can't do that on Facebook. It's really, it's really frustrating. It's really clumsy. But Instagram, beautiful for that. Well, and even if you could, they'd change it next week, so you couldn't get it anymore. <laughs> this is true. It's all, it's all just digital content. It's all going to be. Someone's going to flip a switch one day, and we're just going to be like, "All right, it's over, guys. Sorry." But you know, I do. Instagram, Instagram's a wonderful tool if you, if you really just use it for for photography type absorption, whether it's somebody else's model building or like reference material or just. God, it's almost literally everything now. It's really cool. It's really, really cool. While we're outside of the box a little bit, are there modelers 
who are out of, out of the genre, other subjects. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with Chuck Doan's work or on oh, YouTube. Yeah. That's amazing. Luke Toen's work. Yeah, no, I've, I've and like I said, I, a lot of the, a lot of the heavy names, a lot of us are familiar with. I've, I've come across at some point in time. John Tulcher, uh, who's a, who's a Mark Rooser. These are all guys, that little crew of kind of railroad slash civilian slash uh, quasi-military, you know, um, Marcel DeLong, I think also a Belgian modeler does kind of the quasi robot slash World War One crossover genre. There is a lot. That's why I said it. it's a huge conversation because a benefit to social media, because I'm not a huge fan of it is the fact that we're kind of very familiar with a lot of the, we can see a lot of these different people's quite, it works quite easily. Um, there's also guys, there's, there's guys in the Hot Wheels community that do crazy stuff with Hot Wheels that you just like, what? <laughs> you know, that's like little 164 scale cars and there, there's a whole genre of that out there on Instagram that is just people doing uh, just a lot of stuff with Hot Wheels that you're just like, wait, wait. I even thought about doing a book about it after seeing it. Like, oh, geez, I should try this stuff. Um, and they're rebuilding cars completely, you know, and there's, they're doing between weathered stuff and other things. There's, there's a ton. It's, it's almost to, to that answer. Uh, you know, we're in a, it is very much a cliche, but it's also very true. We're in a wonderful era of scale modeling. Like I, there's no, you know, lack of, of motivation here to do any of this kind of stuff. It's, there's so much for us to do so much for us to play with and have a good time with and, it depends on what, it doesn't matter what your subject is. They're just, they're, it's endless almost. So it's really, if there's a positive to COVID in the world we live in, and we all know it is the pandemic and what's done to us is that we can, scale modeling has exploded, if, if, if that's an answer in and of itself. So it's amazing what's going on. And it's not going to stop anytime soon, by the way. Uh, everybody I've talked to, company-wise, manufacturing-wise, everybody I know, like it's not, they can't keep up with demand. So we're in a really good glory years, you know, golden era of, of scale modeling. I think is, you know, embrace it, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> exactly. So to kind of switch gears a little bit, um, I know, you know, reading like Tank Art, like Tank Art Volume Two is like my favorite modeling book ever. I love it. Um, and I, I just finished a Firefly this week, and of course, like I had that open so I could look at yours eight million times. Throw in the name George Alvear into who's an influencer. George built that model, by the way, the actual construction. Oh, and it's, yeah. it's he, he's glorious. His skill with little tiny pieces of, of material is beyond comprehension. He's an elf. I don't know how he does it. George is an <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah, George. He's, <laughs> no, he's okay. Firefly, and I forget that I actually never built that. I put the tracks on it, which was a nightmare, by the way. Model casting was an absolute nightmare, but yeah. So how it's kind of laid out in the book, you, you know, there's a, a flow. Do you f consistently follow that flow like all the time? Because I've only read volume two because I'm an allied armor guy right, for the right. most part. D and that's why I wrote the book down that way. Because I, I debated, you know, to the earlier questions, do I do a book on green? Do I just put all the green tanks in one book? And I said, no, because guys like you they build allied they don't touch the german stuff and they don't touch the russian stuff or vice versa this that and the next and that was kind of how the to that if you ever want to know another little nugget it was that was how i decided it it was knowing that that's kind of how it is you know um some guys build everything so they'll get all the books some guys just build that specific one so when i put the books together to the project flow to the commerce a lot of the project flow questions re result from the story of the model itself and what i mean by that is like how did that build go along? Um, 
so some models are just kind of created like there's there's a there's a box there's a kit it's subject a i can kind of work it all the way through the size of being smo3 is kind of that because there's nothing for me to fall back upon in terms of reference or anything the firefly was a great one to bring up because that one in particular there's a couple key photos of fireflies of that generation out there that we were using as kind of a reference to how did that ultimately look the way it was geared up on the back deck the way the turret was loaded up with the gear so that model flowed into that project when you read that chapter all those pages about me pan painting all the gear and the bottle all the different there's a photo in there like 50 different bottles of chemicals and paint from all over the place to paint that thing uh, that was its own beast you know but the pershing was very different because the pershing was a 48 scale project that there was like basically two aftermarket sets for i could get that i could do that it was a b c and d and boom i was done in terms of that that makes sense so that flow was very different so it kind of depends on a little bit of what what's going on with the model per se you know again the firefly was it's a very very involved project from a to b and it includes a builder involved some of the stuff is a little bit more streamlined because like the Pershing is a great counter to that or even the kb1 in there is also a great counter to because it's just a trumpeter kit crew model tracks painted green boom done and you know off i go and, and then how do i make that interesting and and part of that is also to address those issues that okay what do you do with an out-of-box you know I, as a publisher i want to cover a basic out-of-the-box build where i don't put in a hundred dollars worth of stuff on it I want to cover a kit like the Firefly that's half resin, half metal, and, and half scratch, and half, you know, everything else. Because those are guys like you guys out there that do that. And so, but also you can take that model's reference to, say, an Asuka kit or the Tasca Firefly or Dragon Firefly and just build it out of the box, kind of look at the KV-1 a little bit and kind of look at the Firefly a little bit and go, okay, well, okay, I can kind of get my feet wet doing this, this, and this, the way he's doing it. So there's a little bit, I, I try to cover a spectrum. You know, the Sharpie in there is a little bit of a different kind of a spectrum. It gives you some camouflage ideas. You know, the, the Churchill gives you some winter, heavy, dirty, you know, heavy weathering ideas, you know, kind of. Ideas. So the books come together as a compilation, but they also come together as I don't want all the projects to be equal. You know, I don't want the KB1 to be equal and wait to the Firefly, if that makes sense, at the same time as a publisher, because I want to cover bases that I think the general hobby guys are also dealing with themselves. You know, they don't always want to do the huge resin conversion stuff. You know, they don't always want to put on full tracks. So th there is a little bit of all that, even though I do put a lot of tracks on just for my own personal, you know, enjoyment, but I do try to cover, uh, like in S, for example, SM4 is coming up. It's the Brumbar, to me a Brumbar kit. I'm going to be addressing the track question heavily in that one because I've never really done a big heavy track chapter in a book yet. Because there's multiple options for Panzer IVs in terms of what you can put on with tracks in 35th scale. So I'll be addressing that because I, I have an opportunity between a, working with a kit track, working with aftermarket A, aftermarket B, so on and so forth. So, so it's a different conversation, if that answers it. <laughs> I hope it answers. <laughs> yeah, it did. Uh, so kind of along those lines, we've had this conversation too, and that's kind of what made me think about it. When When you start a project do you know how you're going to finish it or do you let the project kind of decide as it you go along D does that make sense yes it does like how um, you let the story tell itself sort of thing sometimes it's natural it, it flows very easy from its own project outline if you will you know if, if a certain kit comes in a, a good example of this the flow itself was really straightforward it was technically complicated and I had to do some research 
and I put uh, it's in Tank Art One, the final edition, the third edition. It's the Panzer IV with the flat gun on it, the 88 millimeter flat gun on it. That project comes from a series of photos that were discovered, that were previewed on the internet. And when I saw those photos, it's, it's a handful. It's like two or three photos of this particular specialized vehicle in the field at the end of the war. And that's it. That's all we got. And so from there, I knew what the project was going to be. And I had to figure out what kits to use for that. So then I moved to that step. You know, say, what's the good base kit? What kit to use for this? It's, and it, because of its specifics, there's only certain kits you can choose from. So then that choice is made. Well, it's also a late war vehicle. So its colors are kind of locked in pretty quickly. So that conversation is done. So that moves really, really in a nice flow. Some models like, uh, I'm trying to think of one that, that kind of doesn't, well, the civilian stuff is a little bit different. Say, say the, the tractor in SMO2, that one was backwards into. In other words, I had kind of in my head, I wanted to do something similar to that. A military turned into a civilian project. Well, that's basically a, a blank piece of paper. Like that doesn't tell me <laughs> so much you could do with that. Well, then what happened was I stumbled across some some vehicles in my local area and they kind of influenced this. And then a kit popped up. I'm like, that would work together. It's like, put those together. So sometimes it's just, you see something and then you get a kit of it and you kind of go, okay, that'll work really good. And then others where it's really specific to to even like a specific aircraft, you know, from the war or whatever, like a certain pilot, like I've always wanted to, to, to do a Chuck Yeager thing, if, for example, you know, that's a good conversation because then I'm going to study that pilot, move it through, choose the kit, choose the scale because you have options, move that forward again. So it just kind of really depends on what I'm choosing to put in for that published item if that, because I have to publish it. So that also has its own weight to it. You know, if you know what I mean, like I'm just not, yeah. I do have to respect that, you know, it, it is a branded product now. So it all plays a little bit into, into the conversation. And again, to the previous answer, some of it is I need a simple A plus B equals C project. I need a really easy one because I need to show out of the box. I need to get in some resin. I need to do some photo etch. I need to just show, okay, what works for that? And then sometimes I have a stash. I go, well, kit A over here. I've got all sorts of goodies for that little, and I can't wait to get into it. And then I find some photos later on. I'm like, then I save the photos. And then when I'm ready to start that project, I kind of open it all up. And then I go, okay, here's all my beautiful reference for it. I would say the cornerstone of, to that answer, the cornerstone is I tend to try to find some sort of photo reference somewhere. I don't usually work in a vacuum if that answers that a little bit too. Sometimes it's a photo from 10 years ago and I've just saved it. I've never gotten to it yet. Sometimes it's brand new, like the Panzer IV. When that came out, I moved on that project almost literally immediately, like the next day. Because I knew somebody out there was going to build that model. And I was like, and it was one of the few I wanted to be the first at, which I hate having that attitude. But I knew it when I saw it, somebody was going to, and even Adam Wilder wrote to me, he said, you effing, you know what? <laughs> You beat me to it. And that's happened. And so it, it is, and I, you know, I don't, I don't like to be that way, but when I saw it and I just was in that moment, I'm like, I got to do this. Cause it, it tickles, it scratches my itches sometimes too. A lot of it is a little bit to that answer is I do need to be enjoying what I'm doing. It's very, very important. Uh, I can't, I've stopped doing commission work because commission work is, is the antithesis of that and work. The client will give you the parameters. I want you to do this kit and these markings and this. And if I'm not in the mood to do that, oh my God, you might as well pull my hair out with tweezers. It's just like, it's so painful. <laughs> so I do have to have that love or that interest or that excitement. Or if I've just, if it's a Star Wars type of conversation, if I've just seen that particular movie 
you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, that, that does, it's all encompassing. It's not a very simple answer and, and it does vary from project to project for sure. So that kind of leads into the other, one of the other questions I had. So kind of answered it, but is there anything particular you look for when you decide to do a project? Is, especially for a book. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I will tell you this right now. I don't work on difficult kits anymore. My days are, I'm done trying to cut my teeth. I'm, trying, I'm done trying to, to, to earn my stripes, if you will, working with quote unquote a shitty kid. Amen. And I'm not going to put any manufacturer's names out there in that conversation because I don't want to, you know, be, be, <laughs> there's a few. And you know what I mean by a shitty kit. Like if, if, if there's more on the aircraft side than there is the armor side. Truth be told, in the last 20 years of armor model building, most kits are really good. Uh, there's some inaccuracy problems. There's some, there's some dragon black label conversations or, you know, that are a little bit like, Whoa, dude, what are you guys doing? But overall, most armor kits are pretty good. Like in terms of the holds go together and track fitment and road wheels, you know, are they straight, are they true that that's all fine. There's some aircraft conversations, especially in the jet world where certain manufacturers, they put them together. And you're like, what are you guys doing over there? Like, have you ever built a model before? Cause we don't think you have. And that's just me being nice about it. I have to be polite and I'm a professional and, and I don't want to be that, you know, there's plenty of guys on the internet, you know, that we all know most of them out there who will be more than honest about that stuff. So I don't do that anymore. Why? Because it's just a waste of my time. And in the end of the day, one of the things I've learned, and I have to be really cutthroat about this and to that answer is there has to be an efficiency to the project. There's a reason I love Bandai, but there's also a reason I use Bandai. I will be using a lot of Bandai in the future. There's a reason a lot of Tamiya kits are going to be more heavily favored moving forward because I can't be hung up on fixing engineering of a kit. So that's a major consideration. The kit itself yeah. has to be somewhat relatively solid. At this point in my, in my career, per se, I'm not going to be dicking around with kits that just don't fit. Or I'm. And a great example of this would be uh, years ago, I was handed a box by Brock Models, Italian resin manufacturer. They make some of the best resin subjects on the planet. Some of the stuff that they do resin-wise is beautiful. And they built the Snyder Trophy, the, the Maki, correct me if I'm wrong, M26 or something. It's whatever the Snyder Cup Trophy was, the red one with the floats. It's 30-second scale. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Right? Beautiful. I mean, just orgasmic when you open the box. The resin was amazing. But the front engine cover was about half an inch too short. I don't know if it was a casting issue or it was a shrinkage or there was a gap of literally about a half an inch, which is sizable. That's the width of a finger to put in there. I didn't want to fix it. I'm like, dude, this is, this is crazy. And then almost, cause all of a sudden you're re-scratch building half in front of a fuselage of an aircraft. You barely have any reference photos for, for, cause it's buried in some museum in Italy. And I just like, that just killed the project, you know, basically cause I just don't have the time to dick around with that kind of stuff and, and what I'm trying to achieve. So that one went back in the box. I actually sold it to somebody. I was like, here you go. You knock yourself out with it. It's unfortunate cause it's beautiful, but it, it's one of those where that problem happened and it stopped the project because that happened. So I do, from the standpoint of what I'm trying to achieve professionally, what's the goal of the book, what we're trying to do. There's a reason the Sazabi, the SMO3 is the Bandai Sazabi kit. It's an amazing, amazing kit. And it's really easy to work with as complicated as it is. So yes, there's, there's a definite choice selection that goes out. If I'm gonna have a conversation on the Mustang, that's, that's or a Spitfire or a 109, you know, those conversations become way more deep because of all the kit selection choices and scale choices you have to play with. To that end, you probably won't see a ton of 30 second scale from me because they're huge. That's an enormous amount of work and it's a photo on a page. 
So if I'm the boss, if, if Michael Rinaldi, the boss comes in the room and Michael Rinaldi employees going, dude, did you see the new to me at 30 second scale, blah, 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 blah. Beautiful. It's awesome. Right. But the boss gets mad because you go pick, pull the 48 scale kid out right now at the 30 second scale and get to work. Dumb nuts because you're going to spend six months painting one wing versus six months painting the whole, the whole kit. So I do have to be really careful uh, between enthusiast, hobby guy, love of the new kit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and being efficient on the production end of, of things as well. So a lot of, there's a lot of decisions that go into that stuff. And because a lot of it, I'm just like everybody else. I'm like, Oh, that's awesome. I'm like, yeah. That's three, three years of my life. I'm never getting back. So I got to be careful. While we're talking about subject uh, selection, you know, with 3d printers becoming more and more uh, relevant, higher quality, less cost and everybody getting them, you're starting to see a lot of not only additional pieces and parts and sort of, you know, aftermarket projects that are being done by modelers themselves, but actual kits of subjects that aren't kitted. Is there any magical subject, whether it's science fiction or armor or aircraft that you would, you would 3d print and, and do if you had the chance to? Gosh, that's, that's a loaded question, right? You know, like you just want me to pick something. I mean, is there anything I'm really wanting to see in kit form that could be done in that way? Given I'm surrounded by Gundam kits and a lot of stuff like that, you know, this put me on the spot on that one. There's it so much available today. <laughs> There's so much out there. Oh my gosh. Um, I would I'm, say, I, let me, let me answer. Cause I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you a specific cause I'm trying to think now, what do I want to see? Uh, cause there's, what hasn't been done? Uh, it's kind of like, gosh, what hasn't been made yet? I would say though, what we're going to see, what I see the future of one thing, I, cause it is a little bit of a projection question is I see guys having these on their desks, like, like kind of like the Epson printers were on the desk eventually pretty soon. And then companies selling the files as kind of a process. Um, in other words, you buy the 3d files and you print it yourself. So yeah, if I yeah. have, if, if I have a Sherman and I want to have a variant of the Sherman, say one of the mine roller Shermans, you know, one of the and Jemima or something like that, that's a really intricate, heavy duty resin kit that might be a $150 resin conversion kit. I could sell you a print file for 30 bucks and you can print out Aunt Jemima mine roller, you know, kind of a thing or the yeah. calliopes, you know, the rocket launcher stuff. I think that's where that goes personally. As far as something I, I'm dying to see made up in kit form, there's, I don't know, I'm, I'm swamped with stuff as it is. I, I haven't really given that any thought. You guys probably know it better than I could. <laughs> True. No, I was thinking, you know, subjects like, for instance, the early uh, Y-Wing. For, you know, we talked a lot of Star Wars here. So the early right, Y-Wing right. from the Clone Wars that have all the, have all the, you know, the, the pieces that are on it, you know, all the covers and the, all the panels still on it, you know, something like that. Absolutely. And I, I think even if you were to do, you know, convergence sets for the money of Falcon between the movies, you know, if you go back into solo, if you go back into, you know, some of the versions of, of the Falcon and some of the, the variations of, of all, and this is kind of to that open up a star Wars art book and start putting your figure on a page. You know, there's so many designs that those, those teams have created over time. Uh, I follow some of these guys on, on Instagram. In fact, to that, back to that previous answer, Ryan church, uh, does a lot of Mandalorian design stuff right now. Um, some of the some of the, the the crawlers for for the Jawas, you know, there's multiple versions of those now that we've never seen before that have been you know played around with in the Star Wars world. And some of the Doug is it Doug Chiang, I think is the guy that heads up all of it, and okay. he did all the when they yeah when they talked about the Y wing, he had a conversation a couple of years ago, I think when you know I think probably around between seven and eight about that. 
and kind of Rogue One and what they were doing and, and how the original Y-Wing, he talked about how it didn't have enough X-Wing influence into it and the, the variations of all the things they did to get to what we see today. That's what 3D printing would be beautiful for is to do some like prototype versions because I love the prototype conversation because it happens in the Gundam world too and it happens in you know the armor, you know, the paper panzer conversation, if you will, like the what ifs. It plays all into that, if you will. You know, uh, all the various versions of all those kind of things would be where I think the core of 3D printing. One of the companies I work with, USA Gundam Store, who's a big sci-fi si- side of things, their answer to this is as as a, as a future manufacturing option. It's easier for them to hire a 3D printing company to print out specific small batches of certain stuff than it is to make tooling and injecting molded kits of certain things now because of where the technology has advanced to on a cost structure basis. So yes, and it's gonna explode within the next five to 10 years of what we're all talking about. And I think ultimately it'll be basic, you'll see more companies pop up, new companies that'll be offering digital files versus actual physical products in a box. Yeah, that makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. And you see that already beginning. So yeah, I agree. It's tough for me because there's, <laughs> You know, because you bring up Star Wars, well, which vehicle do I want to see? Well, which book do you want me to open up to look at on the Star Wars art to get, a, you know, something made of? Some of some of the old original, you know, original original work from The New Hope is, is pretty impressive, too. Some, some yeah, really- the, Ralph, the Ralph McQuarrie designs yeah. are so genius. Yeah. And there's some Sid Mead stuff talking about guys like, you know, Ralph McQuarrie, you know, Sid Mead being another well-known uh, kind of designer. You know, some of the, some of the Blade Runner stuff would be cool to see. Um, you know, some of the aliens, you know, design work too. Um, new stuff from that. I mean, there's so, it's just, just so endless, guys. It's crazy. It's almost overwhelming sometimes, you know, making a decision on that stuff. Kind of circling back to um, kit selection and, and what you look for, would we ever see like a large scale bust in one of your publications? By bust, you probably mean like a Gundam bust, like a 35th scale Gundam bust or something like that. Um, or if you're meaning like a figure bust, yes to the robot stuff, probably. There's a guy, Shinoda Heavy Industries, I think he goes by, Japanese model builder. He does really nice, intricate 35th scale busts of a lot of the main Gundams. Um, and they're, they're all, a lot of them are scratch built, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of base kits to work with now. They're a little bit on the pricey side. They're not a, a, a low-cost hobby part of the hobby, if anybody knows about robot busts and stuff like that. But as far as figure busts, you know, I'm not a figure guy. I don't really ever have too much ambition to become a big figure painter. So I'd probably, if we get into figure painting conversation and, and figure busts and even tent scale and some of the six scale and some of that stuff, probably be better for another author to come in and, and produce that material so to speak, and I just publish it. But yeah, I'm not, I mean, as far as the robot sci-fi stuff goes, as long as it's probably not a character per se, and it's more of a, you know, some sort of robot or, or something like that, absolutely. Well, Mike, we have a little bit of a surprise for you. Obviously, you've got a lot of fans and people that you've influenced with your work, and we've reached out to a few of them and asked them to submit a question for us to ask you. So I've okay. got uh, three or four questions here. Uh, I'm a big fan of Q&A sessions, everybody. (laughs) So the first one is from our good friend, John Bonani, armor modeler. And he wanted me to ask you, which model first made it just click in for you? The one where you got the hang of a specific technique or you feel like elevated your game to another level? That would be the the Tamiya 
uh, ISU 152 that I built into the ISU 122. That model in particular, it kind of goes back to, I think it was TJ's earlier question about the project flow. It's it's the one that to me, to date of whatever X hundred number of models I've built, it really was all, I would consider it my most error-free and it really refined the combination of the hairspray technique followed by the oil paint rather rendering technique on top of it as a process, as an actual definable process that I could talk about. And it was that model that did that for me. All right. So John, there you go. That's a, that's a great answer. It's a good model. All right. The next question is from Matt McDougall, Dugues Models. And mm-hmm. he said, this is a two-part question. One of the great things about oil paints is how well they blend and feather. But how do you personally keep them from blending and turning into muddled midtones when you want to maintain separation and contrast? To the oil paint question, the power of it is, is a, there's a direct link in terms of how much thinner you have that you're working with. So you answer that question by controlling how much thinner you're using with the oil paint. And that, that's, that's almost a zero to 100% type answer. In other words, you can almost go pure 100% paint all the way up to thin almost you know 99%. You can't, uh, 100% would just be thinner. But by varying how much thinner you use to blend with is how you control that process. So it, there's no specific answer because each kind of application is its own unique element to it. One of the powers of, well, this is why I've always, I, I've, I've just kind of adhered to oil paint being the best of all the mediums we have available is its ability to do this because you can control it without it drying on you to where it stops working for you. So you have that aspect, you have that, that you have that buffer, if you will, it lets you blend. Uh, without drying and then stop blending like an acrylic wood or something like that. Or even some enamels will do that too. They'll, they'll run out of time as they start to cure. The oil paint window is a lot longer. It's a lot easier for us to deal with. And it matches kind of what we're trying to do on a one-to-one basis of a human hand with a brush on a subject. Like it matches that. So it works really well for us in terms of, do I have an almost dry blending brush? Do I have a 10% on there for, for sake of, I'll just use a number, but you you vary that answer by varying the thinner that you're using. And the chemical conversation in general revol- revolves solely around percentages and, and the amount of quantity that you're dealing with. So that that's kind of, and that's going to be conversations I have in books in the future, because it's a, it's, a, it's a more defined answer I have in 2021 than when I started this conversation. And because I was doing things instinctively. And then what he's, what, what Matt's asking Almost called it does, um, is is that relates to a quantity question? It's a chemical quantity question in terms of how much is on the brush. Um, so you control it by re- in terms of preventing the muddiness, you reduce the thinner. So it's it's a reduction in the thinner that you're you're dealing with on the blend, whether it's in the brush itself and or a separate blending brush. So it's about really remaining disciplined with your thinner use as you're as you're working those yeah. into each other. Yes. Okay. And that, but that, but that, but that does become a second nature thing. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the testing and the practice conversation is because it's so important. This, this, that's a, that's probably one of the better questions to be asked because it relates to the core, the actual raw core of what it is we do, and that's a chemical on a brush. 
And that's all that it is sometimes. And, and a lot of guys get their head messed up with that one. You know, they just, they're thinking all sorts of things. Just remember it's chemical on a brush and just controlling the amount of that and then getting familiar with what works, you know, when it works for you, you have to remember what you just did. Almost write it down if you have to, or take a picture of it. It's like, oh shit, what just happened? Because it worked. And you need, you need to remember that because you don't want to, you don't want to go the other way and it doesn't work. And you're like, oh, what did I do? And I forgot how I did that. No, I'm screwed. So yeah, that's kind of, that's, it's, it's a, it's, it's an important part because it's a foundation question. It's, it's the foundation type. Uh, it's like thinning paint in an airbrush. Like that's a foundation question. Cause once you, once you get it, it's instinctive and it's second nature. Boom. Life is easy. It's a glorious path to, 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 to the heavenly gates at that point in time, you know, and that's what that is. All right. And then he has a follow on question, a similar question. He said, it, it may be counterintuitive, but what is the best way to give some sharpness to oils versus the usual diffusion that typically happens when you're working with oil paints? Um, it, it's related to the, the previous answer. It's almost, I would say, almost working with the paint in its pure, pure form, uh, you know, zero to 5% thinner kind of a thing. You know, it, it's kind of a, like he's talking about basically going from a soft edge to a hard edge. It's the same thing with airbrushing a little bit. It's, it's, uh, I guess technically you could put a mask down, truthfully speaking. I mean, I've never not, I've never done that before, you know, painting oil paints with a mask, but you can mask it. You could hard edge it. You could, you could post it note. So you have like a linear element to it. I also use, uh, if I'm doing a brush stroke and I need the brush stroke to be a sharp edge and it doesn't have to relate to oils, but if there's a paint stroke and I need a nice kind of an edge, it's called the bridge. And basically a bridge is some sort of device on the bench. It's usually a piece of wood or plastic that's linear and straight. And you run the brush edge, you know, the brushes all have about an inch or so of the metal. I forget what the name of that holds the bristles on the wood shaft itself. You can yeah. run that metal edge along a, a bridge and you can get a really nice, crisp, sharp edge with the brush stroke. So there's various ways, but mostly it's going to come down to a reduction of the thinner to almost pure paint process because the diffusion comes from thinning. So the diffusion comes from the blending out comes from the thinning of the paint and it's diffused out. So if you reduce that process, you then can return it to a harder edge uh, in terms of a sharper contrast between its color and the, and the one around it, if you will. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, there you go, Matt. It's a great topic for a video, if you know, because that has to be shown a little bit. It's a little bit easier for everybody to understand in the visual context because it's, 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 it's technical, but it, it, it's, it's easy once it's kind of demonstrated a little bit, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, let's see who's next here. Um, so Martin Kovach, a.k.a. Uncle Night Shift, wanted me to ask you, one thing I've always wondered about when looking at Mike's models and his approach is, is there a difference between how they look in photos versus how they appear when looking at them with the naked eye? Specifically relating to the subtlety of his OPR effects, color choices, etc., where does he find the balance between having models look great in photos versus looking different in real life? One of the, I'd say one of the best moments in my, like just modeling career, if you will, happened a few years ago. And I was, in, I was traveling to, to a show in Belgium and uh, I mentioned his name earlier, Marin Van Gils. Uh, Marin's one of the, he judges some of the best work in the world. Marin's regarded as probably one you know, in my personal opinion i think he's you know in terms of the scale model vernacular he's probably one of the top 10 people in planet earth he's an amazing uh, amazing modeler and i brought over it's the grill grilla if you will in europe 
It's a, it's a self-propelled gun, German self-propelled gun from Tank Art 4. And I brought it to the show with me physically to, to show because I was doing a seminar. And um, it's in the book. You can open the book and, and see it and everything. And he got, you know, you know how it is in those moments in the contest table when we're kind of packing up and leaving and then your buddies come over and they're checking out before you load it up to go home. And, you know, they put their glasses on to get down close and, and you know, they're checking. You need a little nerdy. Now he's going to talk shit right now. Here it comes. You know, he's going to start pointing stuff out. Marin says the nicest thing to me I've ever been told. And he goes, this looks just like the book, dude. I don't, I don't know how you did this. It looks just as good a person as it does in the book. And so to Martin's question, what I do is it's, it's, it's really structured. And I've adhered to it for about 10 years now. Um, and this comes from the photography section of what we do and showcasing and sharing the model work. One of the goals I set forward to myself, uh, as, and even moving into professional endeavors, was make sure that the photo i'm taking is as representative as possible of what it is looks like in for real and so it's a definition of the light source that i use um the white paper it, it, the, the white balance of the camera is critical i set up these things technically so that when the photos are taken it's all under i i work and shoot and publish all under the same light a little nugget I give everybody that some people probably don't really grasp its importance. I shoot everything at night. I never shoot a photo in the day of a, a model that's going to be in a book because the ambient light changes literally day to day. And so will the colors of the model. They'll shift. So I try to control that, like, like micromanage that to death. You know, my boss hates me for it, but it works. <laughs> um, that's incredible. I'd never really thought about that, but actually using the nighttime as a baseline to keep your color, your yeah. color consistency. That's, that's amazing. So the, the result, the reason why is because I rent an apartment. I've, I've, I don't have my own house. I don't work in a garage. I don't have a space per se. Uh, I've always had this problem. And so how do you deal with it? And, and so a lot of Rinaldi Studio Press is pro, a lot of design is, well, design is problem solving. So I've been ingrained from a young lad and I was in the military. I was in the army straight out of high school. I, problem solving is like one. Oh, I was an engineer, I was a combat engineer in the army. So like building a bridge, you know, defeating the mind. It's like problem solving 101. Like it's just at its core. And that was infuriating me. Like, like your brain just goes nuts because I would, you know, you'd be on the internet, you know, you'd be shooting whatever and, and put it in. So my OCD just kicks in, you know, a million times. Like we talk about rivet counting, like that's where my rivet counting goes to like the colors and showcasing it from what I see in front of me to what's in the, on the screen, because I know everybody's screen is a slightly different shade of color to what's on the piece of paper. It's also why I do books more than digital because I can control the ink on the paper a little bit better than I can control somebody's 20 year old, you know, IBM screen versus an Apple monitor versus something else, you know, so on and so forth. So that actually, I put a lot of thought into it because I want mostly that when you guys see it and open the pages, it's exactly as it is. Like there's no bullshit. There's no, I'm not tweaking the shit in Photoshop to, to make it look better. There's no contrast, you know, balance enhancement slider scale thing that I'm doing. I, I erase the background. So it's pure white. So on the paper, on the printed, it, it's pure white on the sides, but I don't do anything to the models per se, you know? So I put a lot of time into that. That's, that's, that's energy effort expended because of that question that when you see, and when, when Marin did that, and he said that to me, I was like, 
I felt really good about myself that I had achieved that goal to a, to a certain point that that type of quality of an eyeball was on that work saying, it looks just like the book. I was like, wow, I was super blown away. I was like, okay, I'm going home. happy. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. And it's something that again, like we've talked about the paper, we've talked about the binding, but it's just one of those things that people take for granted. But if somebody saw one of your models in person, and it didn't look like the photos in the book, then there'd be sort of a, you know, an authenticity issue. You know, like, what are you, what are you doing with you your You have to have integrity with this. There's, yeah, yeah. You can't put your name on the door without integrity. You know, you start bullshitting people. And, and, and look, we're model builders. We spend a lot of time sifting through material to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And you guys, you guys are like dogs. You will smell rotten, you know, something immediately. That's all everybody knows. And even when we see stuff on the internet, you're like, yeah, he's, he's messing with something there. He's doing something funny. And you can't be that way. You know, you can't earn a reputation in this business as, as somebody that people are going to look up to in terms of education and information. If you don't have integrity to what you're doing to begin, if I'm bullshitting you and I'm li like, okay, so here's one. And this is, this is probably one that's going to touch some people's nerves, not you guys in particular, but just people listening. Some people do this is that they'll show you a model and they'll paint it with chemical brand A. And then they'll tell you it was chemical brand B. And that goes on today. And that goes on today on a professional level. And I don't like that. And I hear this stuff and I'm like, what do you mean? And I'm, you know, and this is people will use something they like to use. And then they'll, they'll put bottle photos in there and go, this is what I use. You can't have that. You can't even, it's like, what are you doing? So integrity to me is really, really important. You know, I've taken on the chin. I, I know you guys have known the conversation going around me being late with my product. I've taken on the chin. But I know what happened. I, I know what A and B, it all worked out. This is what happened. I'm in this. I'm trying to fix it. We, we're solving it, moving forward. And but I still have integrity about it. I mean, I'm, you know, I got people yelling at me. I know what that means, you know, on, on a hard edge. So it's very important that when you, when you do this kind of work, that if you're going to tell like Plasmo and Martin and these guys and, and Will and everybody, like when you tell what you're doing, that you're honest about it. And that's really just be that simple. It's really simple and easy and to be honest. about. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If it does, it does and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's, it's a lot about that. But I go down to the, the, to the nanotech. Like I really need to make sure my camera's on point, the lens is on point, the light's on point so that you see what my eyeball sees. The light works the same way. I only shoot with that one light and the store. Like I don't, you know, so yeah, it's a big deal. All right, Martin, there you go. All right. Speaking of Will, he's, uh, he's our last question here and he wants to know, he says, uh, Mike, I believe your work represents the perfect intersection of aesthetics and realism. So how do you define that point? And then how do you get there? Um, well, one is probably, is probably always evolving. One of the, the lessons I learned the hard way, I had an instructor was early school days of learning how to draw a car. Um, and this was an old General Motors designer from the 50s and 60s. And it's a, it was a tougher era. You know, these guys are old school. Um, and he had polio and he was on crutches. And, and it was just, it was one of those teachers you just, that, that was it. And we would come in, you know, kids in school. I don't say kids, I mean, I was in my 20s. But, you know, young student and you throw your work up on the wall. And you're really proud of it. You know, this is all, hey, guys, you know, it's the same thing we do right now. We build the model, don't Hey, guys, look, you're super proud of it. And some guy comes along, and this, this guy would come along, he'd take his crutch, and he'd put on the, the, the artwork that you put on the wall, and he'd rip it down. He goes, this is a piece of shit. You need to do it over. And he, what he'd say to you was, don't fall in love with your work. 
and that was something I took to, to, to heart was to Will's question, never, if, if you're going to fall in love with your own model building work, and we'll see this, and I see this around the community quite a bit, where you fall in love with it, and that's all you, that's it, man, that's, there you go. You're never going to do anything more than that, because you're so in love with that moment and that model, you never advance to the next thing. You never push forward from that. So I always try to keep in mind, you know, my last piece, that's just kind of a barometer. How do I improve upon that? So I push myself for that. And that's, that's a personal thing as an artist to the, is modeling art. That whole umbrella conversation, you is to just the emphasis to push yourself forward a little bit. Um, and whether it's a new technique, whether it's a new tool, whether it's a new product, what, et cetera, new kit, whatever, but just to push. And that's what keeps it going to keep that mark moving. Part of it is also a deadline. I'm in a professional conversation with myself all the time and my boss about the deadlines of, in terms of finishing, when's it done? Um, because there's a lot of that point to Will's comment about, you know, sometimes you overdo it or sometimes you have to stop short and you're kind of, it's never quite right. So you chase it a little bit, you know, you, you might miss the mark a bit on an internal conversation and guys might like it and that's all well and good. There's a lot of models like, you know, oh, that's, I flew it there. I messed up this. I did this. You know, there's a lot of that too. So some of it's hidden. Some of you don't really see. Some of it I cover it pretty well. And some mistakes I use is kind of, you know, turn it into gold because sometimes a mistake is a happy accident. That whole is a very true comment. So I do chase it, Will, to, to, to answer you a little bit because it, it isn't just one point. It isn't a static situation. Some of it is the goal of the model too. You, you can kind of set up that point, target point. By, by the goal of the model, uh, a good one for me is I did a little 172nd scale Burger Panzer as a civilian crane for a Vallejo rust book because they wanted me to showcase some rust painting. So it was a heavily weathered little piece of armor, but it's tiny. It's about two inches long. But that target of the goal of achieving everything I wanted to achieve in 35th scale down into 172nd scale what becomes its own static target point of balance of, of okay, well, what, what am I trying to achieve here? And so sometimes it does move and sometimes it's easily set by the own project goals, but because it might be different now. And I say this to you guys a lot. You've heard me say this before is if you're trying to improve and say your chosen scale, say it's 35th scale armor, then do some 72nd scale stuff because it'll refine you and improve your techniques. So when you move up a scale, the, the stuff that you paint on it, is even improved because it's been refined because your, your brush strokes are smaller, tighter, more in scale and 35th scale because you've been working smaller. So it, some of it is a little bit of that. How do I, you have to kind of train yourself because it is kind of a sport. You need to go and train and you need to, to get the muscles in tune to really improve. So that's kind of where, where my head's at to Will's point of, of the balance between, you know, okay, the research, the kit, the kit efficiency, the kit accuracy. What do I need to fix? What do I need to improve? versus the paint job versus the weathering what references do i have so yeah it, it, and this is all in my head i don't you know I mean, sometimes i talk to myself but because it's on a podcast i'm saying this out loud but a lot of this just goes on in my head you know and i'm just trying to go back and forth i'm flipping pages in the book and or on the internet or whatever so it's a little bit of that but the, the core of it is to just don't fall in love with what you're doing in the moment and, and use it as a next step up the ladder to the next level and, and that'll kind of keep you grounded and humble enough to kind of absorb the next level of stuff and try to keep improving. So. Excellent. That's a great answer. There you go. Will. I, um, I have a question for you and, uh, hopefully uh, this comes across the right way. So, 
um, as modelers, we are always all our own worst critic. So what does Mike Rinaldi, CEO of uh, Rinaldi Studio Productions, what does he think that Mike's Mike Rinaldi, the modeler, the area that he would improve the most in your own modeling? a great question because it just follows on that the previous answer you know of, of, of trying to always improve myself i would say like a lot of guys and this is probably a, a very honest answer is i always do too much it's it's always restraint you know pulling back you know i always do one too many chips i always do one too many scratches and there's a lot of work I, I in my portfolio i look back and oh i wish i didn't do that mark right there i wish i didn't do it's it's not the earthen effect say with pigments because if it's mostly armor portfolio stuff i've done i don't have a lot of complaints on my on my pigment but there's a lot of times where i'll you know it's still even with hairspray sometimes it's too much it really is and so it, it it's learning how to pull back enough that you've got enough visual interest as the artist as the author to bring them in to look at it but also to kind of scratch your itch of we just love it when things are all dirty and beat up and, and chipped, you know, that kind of conversation. So it's restraint. It, it really is restraint. It's a challenge for me. And even though I'm, I know I'm pretty good at it, that's probably the one critic. I always look at stuff. I go back, especially older work. I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? Um, some of my pre-shading works pretty rough. Uh, you know, if you go back 10, 15 years, some of the pre-shading, post-shading, stuff I was doing. Oh man, there, there's like a, there's a little 40th scale Panther G I look at it and just a reminder, just don't do that anymore. Do that. What are you doing? So yeah, restraints probably the top of that list of, of really knowing when to hold back. And, and most of the times I fail to be truthful. Wow. Okay. Yeah. This is a good batting practice. You've been crushing these things, Mike. There's no doubt about that. Well, a lot of you know that if you've heard my other interviews, I'm pretty chatty. <laughs> they tend to talk a lot so i just want to say you're you were a little hesitant to 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 tell us you went to long beach state my dad graduated from long beach state he played baseball for him and oh it's 49 yeah i'm very familiar with long beach state so that's i i said a general school and i kind of got that's insulting right like why would i say (laughs) general school like i didn't mean to do that even though i know there's so many you know I was trying to get to kind of a commuter school. It was kind of an all-around school is what yeah. I was trying to say. And I said general school. And I didn't want to insult anybody that was like going to like just going to school. Like I didn't mean it like that. That's what I thought I sounded like. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Just saying. I, I was there when they built the, I was there when they built the pyramid. And they. I was there from 80, I went 88 to about 94 is when I was there on campus. Uh, and I lived in Long Beach. I lived down in Belmont Shore for a long time. All right. Um, I, I, I grew yeah. up in Costa Mesa. So, okay. Oh, you, yeah. We, so we drove of, the I graduated freeway. high school in 88. So a lot of my friends actually ended up okay. there. We're the same age then. Yeah. 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 Awesome. I miss, I miss LA sometimes. I mean, I, I go back and I realize it's the size of a small country. I, mean, I don't miss this. Shit. I, I don't miss it. I do miss the ocean. The ocean, the beaches down there yeah. were fantastic. And there were some yeah. friends and that's about it. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you on that. You guys have a common hockey uh, fandom there with the, any of the LA teams. I know Doug, you're mostly a Hawks guy now, but Blackhawks, yeah. Which is uh, I'm not the biggest hockey guy. Uh, I was if I was, I was a Kings fan. I'm not a Ducks fan. Anything Anaheim, I was never. So, so you're Costa Mesa, so I'm basically I was Whittier, La Habra, Fullerton, kind of. I was mostly kind of an LA guy. So Dodgers, 
versus Angels, you know, Lakers versus Clippers, uh, that whole conversation, Kings versus Ducks. I was I was always kind of an LA guy. But I'm a I'm a Trailblazer fan. I'm a Portland Trailblazer fan, and their Winterhawks uh, semi-pro team here is one of the best hockey teams around in terms of you know minor league hockey. So they have a huge following here. It's crazy. It's a little bit Canadian-like, if you will. Uh, to, I, I, I don't know if you guys have ever been to Toronto or Canada, in the big hockey cities in Canada. It, it's insane. It's a little bit nuts. It's a little I, scary. I was supposed to go to a Leafs game in Toronto oh, 16 years ago, but they had a the hockey went into a lockout that season. Oh, okay. So, so they probably were seriously out. depressed. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're yeah. They, they, they tease you with the Blue Jays, but if you live in Toronto – uh, if you don't know anything about the Leafs and, and you live in Toronto, you're not going to be well liked. <laughs> Canadian hockey fans, it's a whole other cup of tea. It's like, wow. Like the little kids know, like the moms know, like they'll have breakfast conversations about Toronto Leaf players at the, you know, wife, kids, husband, all involved. Like it's like, it's a, the weather. Oh, that's interesting. That's different, you know? So yeah, good stuff. Yeah, I love sports. Sports is probably like like you asked the hobby question. Sports is probably my my fallback to normal to being kind of normal and you know just following sports in general and, and so on and so forth. So. Yeah, the Dodgers uh, winning the World Series didn't. So. Finally, oh my gosh, oh geez, that was tough. Finally pulled one out. I was waiting for them to lose that one too. I was like, oh man, this is gonna, this is gonna suck, you know? Because I don't know how many times it was been three or four times they were trying to. <laughs> Yeah, that bullpen is scary sometimes. Well, they're scary in the season. It's the postseason that just makes me nervous every time we get up in the postseason. I'm like, oh, here it goes. It's collapse time, you know? Yeah. But that's what makes the winning so special, though, right? Isn't that what they say? That's why 2021 is going to be so beautiful because 2020 was such a pile of poo. Well, know? I moved from, from Costa Mesa to, the, to Illinois and quickly became a Cubs fan. So uh, mm-hmm. 2016, that World Series, I I was mm-hmm. I was – balling when they won that i couldn't mm. believe that happened yeah you know so that's that's when it hits you that's when you realize how special it really is great stuff yeah. so mike uh, ipms nationals in uh, vegas if it happens are you planning on being there uh i've told myself no shows this year um personally uh it'll depend two things on the books because i'm just i'm just not going to put myself physically out there uh, if the books aren't around yet because i'm probably going to get beat up a little bit uh, and I don't need that abuse right now. Uh, I got bigger fish to fry. <laughs> I'm planning mostly 2022 and beyond. It, to me, the city location isn't super relevant. You know, I, I'm happy to go anywhere almost. Uh, I've been off the show circuit for a while. I haven't done a national since, gosh, maybe Anaheim. That's a while ago. I miss Phoenix, Kansas City. I was there. Uh, Virginia Beach. I was Virginia Beach might be my last I can miss nationals I was at. It's been a few years for me. Vegas is cool. I mean, it's easy from a convention standpoint. That's always nice. Um, is it still planned late July timeframe in Vegas? It's mid-August. August. Yeah. August. Well, that's even worse. Yeah, way to go, guys. It's going to be <laughs> Vegas, 120 I moved. So did the Costa Mesa move. You went to Illinois. I actually went to Vegas. To live. My parents were located in Vegas. Um, and one of my goals was to get them out of <laughs> So I moved from Long Beach. I was in San Pedro. I moved from San Pedro to Vegas. I lived in Vegas for about 14 months. And that was about the dumbest thing I'd ever done. So yeah, it's August in Vegas. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. I don't know. It depends a little bit on the vaccine situation and that whole thing and that conversation. I hope by August, everything's cool. Um, I'd say right now it's probably a 50, 50. Yes. Right now, given the scenario of everything, I should be probably RSP should be off and running good this year. 
Uh, vaccines, we should probably all be good travel by August, I would think. I don't know about maybe giving a show or seminar. I might just show up, but I don't know. I haven't talked to anybody about doing a seminar or anything like that. Uh, they wanted to. They wanted me in Tennessee, and I had to back out. But my next shows are planned for 2022, actually, to be honest with you guys. So I haven't really, I haven't given this year much thought. I kind of had just, res, you know, resided in the fact that let's just not worry about it. Get the books done. 2022, you can, you know, hop back out and have fun. Yeah, stay healthy, get the books done. I got it. That's, that's kind of, yeah, I'm trying to keep my life pretty simple. I've had been, I've been kind of taken on the chin the last couple of years, you know, both financially and just, just in general with just, you know, not having inventory and, you know, just trying to work through these things and, you know, some of the, some of the, I mean, it, it ended up being a good conversation, but some of the conversation where some guys thought I was out of business, you know, some of the dealers, I, some of the shop, shops I talked to. And so coming back on business and getting that all handled, getting back up to speed, you know, being reliable, being trustworthy, you know, when I say a book's coming and having that happen, that, that's, that's my main goal. So shows are still kind of a backseat for me, just on, a, on an RSP level, like even not without the COVID stuff. So I really just focus on get the company healthy, then come back out, you know, that whole thing. So. Well, that's what I've been doing. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a, a great conversation. Really enjoyed, uh, you know, hearing you d- kind of take a deep dive into your philosophy, your modeling, your company, and hear about all the uh, plans you have for 2021. Just thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. No, thank you guys. It's nice meeting you, Doug and TJ and Scott. Thank you again for your longtime support. All the, all the kind of, you know, being a shoulder to lean on when, when we need to talk about this kind of stuff. And, and I appreciate it all. Very, very nice. I appreciate it a lot. Well, the feeling, feeling mutual here and uh, I've always appreciated your generosity. It's pretty obvious that you uh, have a lot to do a lot on your plate. So thanks so much. And uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime when it makes sense. Yeah, and in, the, in the meantime, have a great 2021. And uh, I know that, uh, the books are going to get out there and the new projects sound amazing. So best of luck. Thank to you guys. Mike. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys. Hey, thanks again. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Oh, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed our interview with Mike Rinaldi. It was great to be able to hear from such a talented modeler and to hear from him on Rinaldi Studio Press, how he approached modeling and his passion for the highest quality of his publications. Uh, that was a really fun interview. Uh, we all really enjoyed it. So I'm hoping you guys did too. Well, that's about it for episode 13. Another long one. Uh, fantastic. Want to especially thank Mike Rinaldi for taking the time to join us. That was a, a tremendous honor to be able to speak with him. We also want to thank uh, our new guy here, uh, John Bonani, the rookie. I, you know, I say that in fun, but you know, he's he's really been a huge part of our podcast uh, to date, anyway. So, uh, John, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to future episodes. We also want to thank Anthony Goodman at Goodman Models. We also want to thank Chris Sieber, Rob Morales, and Joseph Porsche for helping support the posse. Thanks a lot, you guys. Really, really appreciate it. So until next time, to all of you out there in the posse, and especially to you guys, Doug, TJ, John, have a great couple of weeks, and we'll talk again soon. Take care, you guys. Adios, amigos. (laughs) Have a good one. Cheers. We'll catch you later.